בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, great to be here in Aventura, the Breslov Center, ברוך השם. We've uh, had a lot of great feedback uh, over these uh, last few weeks in the series, the Musar series. ברוך השם, lots of people doing תשובה. But זה כנגד זה ברא אלוקים. Just as uh, we have many people are calling, texting, emailing, about how the shiurs have been changing their life, whether it's causing them to do tshuva, causing them to want to convert, causing them to want to have a child again, or different things, shlom Hashem. At the same token, we have uh, challenges. We have challenges of people that are doing everything they can to fight the truth. And uh, unfortunately, this is not unique to us. This is... What's written already in the Gemara? In the Gemara, Masechet Sota, page 49, it talks about what's going to happen at the end of days, before the Mashiach comes. And one of the main prophecies that we see today, more than any other time in history, is that the truth of Torah is going to be hated. It actually says in the Gemara, the truth will be despised. And so are the people that say it. Now, Am Yisrael has always had a problem with rebuke. We've never exactly been uh, excited about getting rebuke, whether it was from the number one rebuker of all time, Moshe Rabbeinu, or from any of the prophets. But nonetheless, we eventually did tshuva at some point or another. After the first Bet HaMikdash, took us seven years to fix ourselves, but we did it. Second Bet HaMikdash is taking us a little longer, about 2,000 years so far. But nonetheless, there's still some of us here and there that are listening to the rebuke, listening to the truth, and are doing tshuva. But unfortunately, there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion of what the truth is. And it's not because the truth is a mystery. Lo b'shamayimi. Hashem said to us, the Torah is not in heaven. Meaning, it's right next to you. You want to know the truth? Open a book. It's called the Torah. Five books of Moses. You have a Tanakh, 24 books, which include the five books of Moses. Open it. See what it says. Obviously, look at the commentary by our sages, mainly Rashi, Rambam. And you see what the basic truth is. It's not far from you. You can order it online. You can see it online. If you don't have any money, you can get it for free even. It's not hard. What's the confusion? Why is there a confusion? The confusion is an outcome of our laziness. Most people are willing to spend 20 years chasing the first million dollars, 20 years chasing a skill that's completely useless, 20 years chasing a partnership that's eventually going to end, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. But sometimes they're not even willing to spend a few days to learn the truth. You ask him why. He's like, no, I rely on my rabbi. I rely on what it says on the internet. The problem is that Hashem didn't say, rely on your rabbi. Hashem says, learn Torah. He says, make yourself a rabbi who is going to double check you. But you still have to learn yourself. You're still responsible to learn what the truth is. You still have to open the book. Once you open the book, 
you start seeing that the truth is very, very different than we think. Now, someone asked me earlier today, the, uh, today is a um, Ilula, I believe, of the uh, Rebbe um, Lubavitcher Rebbe, was it last night? And uh, they showed me an article that was written about the tzaddik and how they're tarnishing his name. Now, how are they tarnishing his name? They're not saying anything bad about him. Actually, that would be, be- that would be better. The reason why they're tarnishing his name is because they've turned the Lubavitcher Rebbe into an idol. They say he's still alive. The thought of him, his body not being alive still is impossible. He's one with God. He's the middleman. He's not just Mashiach. He's above and beyond. And all types of shtuyot, all types of complete nonsense idolatry that they've turned a tzaddik into. So he asked me, how could people be so stupid? How could people be so stupid? I mean, obviously, you know, he died. Everybody goes to his grave every year. Why are you going to the grave if he's still alive? And if he's still alive, if, you, if, he's, if he's, you're just going for the grave just because of the meeting place, why doesn't he meet you also? Pray also. If it's a holy place, let him pray also. If it's 770 in Brooklyn, they're giving him an aliyah, why don't they have him hold the Sefer Torah also? Have Gdua also. This craziness that's going on in the Jewish world has turned part of our people into unintentional idol worshippers. So you ask yourself, how could this be possible? How could the smartest people on earth be so stupid? How? Now to answer how could we be so smart... It's very simple. Aside from obviously Siat Bishmaya, Hashem, and all stuff, and aside from the uh, all the Nobel Prize winners and statistics, forget about that. Let's put all of that aside. Anyone that wakes up first thing in the morning and reads 250 pages is going to be smart. That's what we do. It's called Tfilat Shachrit. Every morning a Jew wakes up, and on a short note, if you're, let's say, Ashkenazi, Nusach, that's extra short, you're still reading 100 pages. First thing in the morning. Kids that go to school today don't read 100 pages the whole week in public school. But an average Jew starts his morning reading 150, 200, 250 pages every morning. Regardless of whether it's the same thing or not, you're reading a book to start off your day. In the afternoon, you read another half a book. To finish off the night, you're reading off another quarter of a book, a few paragraphs few pages. And somewhere in the middle of the day, if you're a responsible Jew that loves Hashem, you have to learn Torah. Two. That could be a few books if you're really serious. It's no mystery we're so smart. So how could someone so smart that reads Torah and learns the prayers be so stupid and say that someone that died is alive, someone that's alive is dead sometimes, someone that says the truth is a liar, Someone that says the lies is saying the truth. How? How could everything be so opposite? How could it be? The simple answer is that sometimes we're lazy. Sometimes we don't want to check for ourselves. We want somebody else to do it for us. So I asked the guy, 
What does it say? Everything that you're saying it says. Oh, I don't know. Well, did you ever see it for yourself? You see it in a book somewhere, any book. Pick a book. Even if it's Harry Potter, just tell me the name of the book. I'll see it. I'll verify it. If it's true, I'll quote it in the lecture. He says, no, I never saw the book. So who told you? Who told you this lie? This stuyot, this craziness. Who told you this? Who? Who lied to you like this? Who put this insanity in your head that made you believe such things, regardless of what they are, even irrelevant to the Rebbe? Things like you're not allowed to rebuke anymore. Things like everyone is anus. The whole generation is anusim. Everyone is a, uh, you know, a, a little baby that was stolen by the Christians. Doesn't know anything. Miskin, incapable, retarded. Who told you this? Who? Where is it written? Where? Show me in a book. Show me who said this. Show me who misled you to such an extent to make you believe that you are incapable of connecting to Hashem without a middleman. Who made such an irresponsible decision? And they can't tell you. They just say, no, no, but I heard it. From who? From a rabbi. Who? And he gives me a name. And then you ask the rabbi, where did you get it from? And he says, I heard it from somebody else. And eventually, it's a dead end. Eventually, it's a dead end. Either because they don't know where they heard it from, they just made it up out of their thin head. Or they misquoted the Torah. They read a verse, they didn't like the meaning, so they decided to translate it themselves. One of the ways that's confusing the non-Jewish world that wants to be Jewish, meaning the conversion world, is this insanity in the conversion world, Noahide world, where a couple of irresponsible people that are considered rabbis by smicha standards, but not necessarily by what they're doing, wrote a book called The World of the Ger. And this book completely contradicts every teachings regarding this topic. The whole issue of conversion converts the issue of what a ger is, what a what they're allowed to do according to Allah, what they're not allowed to do. In essence, they're telling the non-Jews that they could keep Shabbat just like a Jew. Which according to the Rambam, is the worst mistake a non-Jew can make. You want to be Jewish? Want to keep Shabbat? Be Jewish. No problem. Keep the mitzvot. Keep everything. Convert. You have a conversion process. I know it's not easy. I know it's a headache. I know it's a lot of balagan and political issues. You want to do it? Do it. If you're not willing to go through the trouble of conversion, regardless of how much money and how much time and how much headache it takes, you're not going to make it as a Jew anyway. The Jewish people have been striving for survival. Trying to survive for 3,300 years with the world at large trying to kill them in every corner they turn. We were slave, we were kicked out, we were beat up, we were persecuted, we were executed. But Baruch Hashem, we still remain. And you want to wallow in with your head up high and no interference. I just want to be Jewish and I want a comfortable life. It's not realistic. It's not a part. Being Jewish requires self-sacrifice. It's part of the dues to think that it's going to be easy to join the Jewish people. is irresponsible to begin with. It means you don't know anything about the Jews. 
So what happens with people that write these books, on one end, they make a fortune. They make a lot of money. Because what they're doing is that they're telling everyone, you're perfectly fine the way you are. How much are you willing to pay me for that? If I told you that none of you ever have to do anything, and I'll create some verse for you to show you you are anus. You don't have to do anything. Don't keep any mitzvot. Don't keep Shabbat. Don't keep nothing, Shalom. Nothing. You're anus. I'll take it on me. How much are you going to pay me for that? How much is that worth to you? People will pay endless price for that. Endless. If right now you knew you were not obligated to keep any mitzvot, how many of us will keep anything tomorrow? I'll answer it for you. Zero. Including myself. This is not because I love Hashem any less than you. But it's just not realistic. Unless you know that you have to, you don't do. Unless you know you have to work, you don't want to go to work. Even if you like your job. Even if you make a million dollars a day. If you know that you have enough money, you don't feel like working, you don't go to work. That's just the reality. Why do people that have a lot of money continue to go to work? Simple reason is, the Gemara said, you give someone 100, they want 200. You give someone 200, they want 400. Meaning the inclination of greed makes us feel like we're missing as much as we have. Which means that the more you have, the more your neshama feels like it's missing. If you have 500, you feel like you're missing 500. If you have a million, you feel like you're missing a million. So the guy that has the most feels like he's missing the most, thereby feels like he needs to work the most. I can tell you this from personal experience. The more money I made, the more I felt like I needed. Not because I bought jets and planes and helicopters, but I needed to do stuff. What? I have no idea. I need to build things, build buildings, build companies, build something. If, you, if Hashem already gave you the ability to make, you go make. But if I make $5 million now, I'm going to try to make $10 million next year. You don't think about, no, you know what, $5 million is okay. I'm going to stay at this level. I'm going to coast for a little while. No one ever thinks that. The only time they think about it like that is they're going to coast with religion. They're going to coast with Judaism. No, I'm gonna just, I don't want to do tshuva right now. I'm, I'm okay where I am. I just started keeping Shabbat a few months ago. I'm okay right here. Well, what about learning Torah every day? Nah, I'm not ready for that yet. What about Tarat Mishpacha? So, you know, your wife is not Nida when you're with her. Nah, I don't know about that yet. I'm not ready for that. I'm going to coast for now. I just started keeping Shabbat, so I'm going to coast. I'm okay where I am. Don't pressure me, Rabbi. Insanity. Unless we knew that it's not really a choice. We have to. So, why do people make such mistakes where they tell you that something that's not allowed is allowed, someone that's not alive is alive, and all these different things? Well, first and foremost, like I said, there's a lot of money in telling people lies. A lot of it. A lot of money in telling people about telling people what they want to hear. Humanity depends on it. People are not all ready for the truth. 
If you ask most couples, how did you meet? You'll find out that the original story was a lie. Meaning that the boy lied to the girl in order to get the girl to be his girl. Why? Because he didn't think that she would want him the way he is. So he pretended to be somebody else. But when it was too late, she finally found out who he was. But the good news is, she wasn't who she said she was either. Lies. We're unsure of the truth. We don't know if we can handle it. There's a lot of money in the tr- in, the, in in lies. People that write books tell you that what's not allowed is allowed, and what's not what's what is allowed is not allowed. Tell you the opposite. Are turning the world upside down, and are making people comfortably numb. Because if Hashem said that homosexuality is not allowed, but some rabbi says it is, that enables me to continue. To continue sinning against Hashem, I have His signature. He's responsible now. If someone convinced me with a silly video that the Federal Reserve is not really a government agency, it is really a mafia, conspiracy, the Rothschilds own it. In reality, it's all a scam. The IRS is even a bigger scam because it's not part of the Constitution. And silly old me decides, you know what? I'm not going to pay taxes. This may sound like a brilliant idea, especially if you make a lot of money. Problem is you'll be arrested shortly after. The good news is, is that Hashem doesn't work the same way as the government. He gives you a little more time. But there's a lot of money for someone to make such a video or write such a book that you could cheat the system. There's always people that say, I could tell you how to be rich. I have a system. It's a foolproof system. And I've become rich because of it. The only thing he didn't tell you is that because of it meant because I sold the book to tell you how to be rich, which at the end of the book it says, write a book. That's how I got rich, by selling the book, of telling people that how to get rich. I didn't actually get rich, I'm actually following what it says in the book. This is 100% legitimate. This is countless examples. So, there's a lot of money in lies. The second thing is, there's no shortage of stupidity. Even as far back as Einstein, he had famous quotes saying that there's always going to be one thing that he could depend on, which is a surplus of stupidity in the world. There's always going to be a lot of it. This is not necessarily to insult the world, but people are not necessarily stupid because of a lack of education. They're stupid because of a lack of effort. They don't want to open up a book. They don't want to do research for themselves. They don't want to verify. Someone says it, they believe it. Especially if it's on the internet or it's written in black and white on some piece of paper. How many times have you seen people vouch by something that it says on TV about some medicine or some new strategy to do something, one thing or another, only to be shown that it was a complete fraud several years later? No, but a scientist said it. A scientist said it. They verified it. A scientist. Scientists. 
Everyone that today, scientists like the people think science is God. Scientists said it. It's like God said it. Yeah, but the scientists also said it was a theory. Yeah, but a theory in science is like fact. So why don't they say fact? Why do they say this is a scientific fact? Why do they say it's a scientific theory? No, because it's a scientific term. But also scientific fact is also a scientific term. Why don't they use that? Nobody's a really famous scientist. So did he ever make a mistake in his life? Oh, well, yeah, you know, he only blew up a couple of buildings once, but that, that was just a few years ago. I mean, he's not going to make the same mistake again. But you know that same scientists are the very same scientists that come out with the medicines. From Pfizer, from Bristol Myers, from Eli Lilly, and all these major corporations that kill people. Sometimes knowingly, sometimes accidentally. Same scientists. Now, they don't come out with the medicine with the intention of killing people, or at least we'd hope. But the very same smart scientists make the biggest mistakes in the world. In fact, the ones that have the most amount of degrees and reputation are the ones that have made the biggest mistakes in history. And the reason why is because the bigger the scientist, the more people invest into him, the more responsibility is given to him the more risk he's able to take, the bigger the ultimate failure, if and when it happens. So the second part is of why people believe foolishness is because they're lazy to double-check. Last but not least, the reason why people believe lies, smart and stupid people believe lies the same, Sometimes the smarter the person, the more gullible he'll be even. And the reason why is because believing a lie will enable us to live a lie. If I believe that I don't have to do anything, then I don't have to do anything. Believing that some guy died 2,000 years ago, and that alleviates me from everything it says in the very same Torah that I say I believe in technically. But it relieves me from it. I don't have to do it anymore. That's a very convenient lie. A guy died 2,000 years ago. I don't even know him. As a matter of fact, I don't even know where his birthday is. They celebrate on December 25th, but it's not really it. And the fact that there's at least 25 stories that are exactly the same throughout history, let's just put that aside for a second. But it's very convenient to believe in J.C. Penney simply because... I don't have to do anything. Nothing. All the laws, 613 laws in the Torah, not for me. He died. Yeah, but where does God say that? No, he didn't actually say it, but somebody says that he said it. It's convenient. It's a convenient lie to believe in. Someone says that the Rebbe is still alive. And he's our connection. It's also a very convenient lie. Because those very same people also believe that we're all anusim. We're all relieved from our responsibilities. Whatever you're doing, whatever's convenient for you to keep, you keep. Whatever's not convenient, it's okay. You don't understand. You're just a little baby that was abandoned and 
picked up by idolaters. It's a convenient lie to believe in. Well, last but not least, the ones that believe that the mitzvot are only applicable based on levels. Like someone came to me recently and uh, said, yeah, you know, but modesty for women has levels. Has levels. And I said, yes, it does. She was all. She was very, very excited. Very excited that there's levels of modesty. I said, yes, there's modest, and then there's not modest. So, well, no, 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 no. I meant that there's levels of how modest somebody can be. I'm like, yes, modest, yes, modest, no. That's it. There's two levels. It's either modest or it's not modest. It's either you're covering your hair or you're not covering your hair. It's either the skirt passes the line that you're supposed to pass or it doesn't pass it. It's either the the clothes are too tight or they're not tight. There's no such thing as half a kosher. It's either kosher or tarif. That's it. These oxymoron terms that people have come up with they don't exist in the Torah. It's yes or no. It's black and white. It's not about being stringent. It's just, that's what it says. So, believing that there's levels of observance is a very, very convenient lie. It's actually the ultimate lie that's convenient. To believe that you can keep Shabbat like the Allah says, there's no car, there's no fire, there's no cooking, there's no carrying outside of any roof, and so on and so forth, all of the Allah relating to Shabbat. But I can keep Shabbat 50%. How could I keep Shabbat? I keep Shabbat with all the nice things that you did, like eat and cook and all that stuff, but I drive to get the food the restaurant and the food is not always kosher and the synagogue is not necessarily close to my house it's about 25 minutes away in my car so yeah in essence you went to shul in essence you ate in essence you could even do kiddush that's not the same it's a very convenient light to believe in one of the most horrific troubling stories I've ever heard. I heard just about a week ago. As a matter of fact, a week ago today. Someone that says that, sent me a letter saying, thank you, thank you for all the different things that she believes that I've helped. To be honest with you, I didn't know I helped her. Someone sends me questions, I answer them. But to me, Someone asks me questions about Allah, about different things. I'm thinking they they already know. They're just trying to improve or they're trying to verify or maybe I made a mistake. I don't know. I don't start judging people who he is or who she is. So she asked me questions for already over a year. Bo Hashem. Seems like she knew what she was talking about. I thought she was 100% religious her whole life. I thought she was from from birth. I didn't think she was anything to do with Baal Tshuva. I just thought that she liked my shiurim. And Rabbi Mizrahi Shuri, maybe she heard about me through him. That's it. Didn't think much of it. Questions comes in, I answer. And then she tells me a story, and she says, you know, in the letter she wrote me last week, 
You know, I wasn't always religious. That was already a shock for me personally. It doesn't necessarily shock you. But for me, it was a shock. You think you know something about somebody for over a year. Already somebody tells you, I wasn't always religious. Not that it mattered. It was a surprise to me. Because I only started doing tshuva five years ago. Started doing five, five years ago, I started doing tshuva. I watched uh, some of Rabbi Mizrahi's uh, videos. And all of a sudden, I realized that I have to start becoming more modest. And I started becoming more modest. And I started observing the mitzvot. I started keeping kosher. I started doing everything. I even covered my hair with the mitpachat. I even covered my hair with a scarf. Now, for anyone that's done tshuva, they know that for a woman, that's the top. Modesty, most difficult mitzvah out of all. Shabbat, piece of cake. Sending kids to yeshiva, no big deal. Kosher, so what? Most difficult mitzvah for a woman in our generation, modesty. Real modesty, I'm talking about. I'm talking about half modesty. The people that wear kisui rosh, but they wear a mini skirt. Or the, mini, or, or the long skirt, but they, no kisui rosh. You know, the people do 50-50 sometimes. No, I'm talking about full modesty, most difficult. Even half modesty is hard. You tell a woman, listen, you've been wearing pants your whole life, but you're not allowed to wear pants in Judaism. It's not modest. First of all, it's considered men's clothing, which you're not allowed to wear. And second of all, it's completely not modest, simply because it shows the, your figure. So you tell this to a woman, it's very, very hard to adjust. But eventually they do, if they're serious. Some adjust really quickly. Some take time. But nonetheless, when a woman covers her hair with a mitpachat, that you could look, that's sadika. That's it. That's the top. At least I thought. Until last week. Last week I get a meal, and she tells me, I started doing tshuva five years ago. I took on kosher, inside and outside the house. Because I realized that God is inside and outside the house, not just inside. Kosher all the time. Modesty, covered my hair. Everything. But about a year ago, I watched one of your lectures, and I realized that I'm a walking Chilul Hashem. Why? Because every Shabbat that I go to shul and go to the rabbi's house who invites me, it's not a good look that I'm driving on Shabbat with my Kisul Roshan. To me, the thought of a woman, a Jewish woman, driving on Shabbat with Kisui Roshan, it took me at least 36 hours to adjust to, to just think about something like this. I didn't know how to respond. You don't even know who's religious anymore. Sometimes you don't even know who's Jewish. Sometimes you have a guy coming to shul five years, he's not even Jewish. I have a few people like that. They tell me, yeah, I've been going to this Chabad for five years. I'm like, yeah, but you're not even Jewish. Yeah, but nobody says anything. You don't even know who's Jewish. You don't know who's keeping. You don't know anything. You have to be like a private detective now. So the, the shocking part of the story was not just the fact that this woman was driving for four years until a year ago. She realized that she can't and she stopped driving on Shabbat. But the most terrible part was the fact that the rabbi was enabling her. 
the rabbi was the one that was encouraging her to drive on Shabbat to come to shul, to come to his house, knowing she's driving, knowing she's driving on Shabbat. He's inviting her to his house every week, to the shul, encouraging her to continue. Now, if anyone would say that some of these people have the argument that they're trying to bring people closer and eventually they do tshuva, how can you explain such a thing? How can you explain if you already see a woman making the biggest sacrifice, according to pretty much all standards, of covering herself head to toe, why wouldn't you take the initiative of telling her at some point during those four years, hey, you know what, since you're already being modest, you're already keeping kosher, you're already keeping pretty much everything, you think maybe you should not drive on Shabbat? It's just a thought. Just a thought. It's not allowed, by the way. It's not allowed. Just a thought, maybe. I don't know. Just throw it out there. If you don't want it, no big deal. Just don't take it offensively. Just a thought. One time. One time, say it. One time. This is why I tell you guys that there's, unfortunately, an enormous amount of Erev Rav. There's an enormous amount of fake religious people, fake rabbis, that are Reshaim Erushaim, that the only thing they care about is your money. That's it. Nothing else. In fact, many of them, in my opinion, don't even believe in God. How can you believe in God and invite somebody to your house as a rabbi on a regular basis for four years knowing that they're driving when you know 100% it's against all halachot, any standards of halachot? Well, how do you justify that? How do you explain that one? The woman's wearing kisui losh. She's driving to your house on Shabbat. So, unfortunately, this is the world we live in. But part of the fault is ours. Part of the fault is ours because we're constantly looking for convenient truths. We're constantly looking for convenient things so we could pacify ourselves and continue living the way we want to live. We continue driving on Shabbat, continue eating kosher thinking, acting as if it's kosher. No, no, Rabbi, it's only salad. It's only salad. Rabbi, it's only tuna sandwich. What, you ever see a tuna sandwich complain? It's only tuna sandwich. It's only uh, cheese on a pizza. So what if there's pork in it? It's just cheese. It looks like cheese. It's only this. It's only that. It's only a convenient truth that all of us know is a lie. All of us know it's a lie. So part of it is our fault. A big part of it is our fault. When we go up to Shemaim, they're going to say, do you keep kosher? Yeah, inside the house. What about outside the house where you were 75% of the day? Outside the house. Because God was there too. He was not only in your house. He was outside the house too. Oh, the rabbi said it was okay to eat at Starbucks. Oh, okay, bring the rabbi here. We'll, we'll, we'll make a nice VIP for both of you guys and gain no Nice, warm place for you. Take a vacation. All it does is both of you get punished, not just him. There's no get-out-of-jail-free card in Judaism. And this is one of the things we're going to learn today in this Mishnah. Because many times we've heard about he has no share of the world to come. We've heard this term. He lost his olamaba. No share of the world to come. Scary. What does it mean? 
What, everybody else in the world, he just doesn't get one? He just looks at everybody else playing in this other world. Wow, what a cool world. What do you do? You just look at everybody, you do nothing, you play with toys? What do you do? You just hang out? You wait for people to give you maybe a piece of their world? Like one of those little kids in the playground nobody wants to play with? What happens if you don't have an Olamaba? How can you lose an Olamaba? It's a world. Who lost the world? Does anybody notify you that you lost your world? You get like an email, text. We signed up. We're in the middle of Baruch Hashem launching our app. We signed up with uh, iTunes or i something something with Apple. It's like 17 emails, just for a little app that we want to make, put all our lectures on. It's like 17 emails. Sunny got an email. Vimesh got an email. We sent each other email that we got the email. Everybody knew we got emails for an app. So world or Lama Ba is a little bigger than app. Does anybody send you an email? Hey, Mr. Jones, you lost your Olam Abba. Take care. Love, Hashem. Something? Sad news is, no, you don't get news. You don't get a notice if you lost your Olam Abba. But you do get insights of whether you can or not. Whether you can lose it or you can't, or maybe we've already lost it and really we have to spend the rest of our lives getting it back. A much more likely scenario in, in many cases. Now, in this week's parasha, parashat Chukat, it starts off with the laws of the impossible to understand red heifer. Impossible to understand for us humans, and the reason why I say that is not because I'm insulting anyone's intelligence here, but rather because that's what Shlomo Melech said. Shlomo Melech, the wisest man of all time, said that he understands all of the logic of all of the laws in Judaism, but the red cow, it's beyond him. It's beyond him. He had the highest level of intelligence to such an extent that the sages said it's mamash the closest thing they could be for a human to be like divine. Higher than even Moshe Rabbeinu. And he said, Red cow, I don't understand. What's so hard to understand? One simple way to explain. The red cow was supposed to at the times of the Bet HaMikdash, was supposed to purify us. Anytime we made sins, we wanted to do tshuva. Part of the tshuva was to purify us. Anytime we became impure because we touched a dead body, time to purify us. Because if, let's say, for example, someone touched an impure, something impure, such a dead body, now they have two options. They can become pure or stay, stay impure, or they can become pure. Now, if they stay impure, that's obviously not a good state to be. No, not because everybody looks at them and says, knows that they're not pure, but rather because if they touch a korban, they touch one of the sacrifices, they immediately make the sacrifice impure. And they are mevazeh the kodeshim, they're actually ruining something that's holy. 
And for that, it's a very, very serious punishment. As serious as can be, according to this parasha, it's karet. It's the worst. Doesn't seem like a big deal. But it's, and we'll learn it's also part of our Mishnah. So the tough part of understanding the paraduma, the, the red heifer, is that someone has to sprinkle, take the, the ashes of the red cow after they burn it, put it in some holy water that they had at the Bet HaMikdash, the same water that they washed the hands and the feet of the Kohanim, the same water that they used for the sota. They um, take a uh, hyssop, you know, a little piece of leaves or whatever, and they would sprinkle it, and whoever got the water on them is pure now. How it becomes pure, not pure, we don't understand how, but that's the logistics of it. What's the hard part of this to understand? The hard part for Shlomo Melech to understand was that the very same person that's purifying, the Kohen, that's purifying everyone, he takes the leaf, sprinkles on all of us. We all become pure. At the end of the day, after he finishes his job, he has to have somebody else sprinkle him. Why? Because he's now impure. So the same water that's making everyone else pure is making the pure impure. Shlomo Melech said, this is beyond human intelligence. To understand how something does both at the same time, it's not for us to understand. But why is it the beginning of the parasha? Why does the parasha start in the second verse? Zot chukata Torah, this specific mitzvah of para aduma. This is the entire Torah, it says. This law of para aduma, it's the entire Torah. What does it mean? It means that when someone is trying to learn the Torah, first thing they need to understand, it's not always going to be logical. It's not always going to be logical and understandable to you. But that doesn't make the deficiency in the Torah. The deficiency is in us. So just because it's not logical, just because you don't understand it, doesn't mean it's wrong. It means you just don't understand it. It means you just need to study more. You need to have more siyat mishmaya. So I got a call today of this guy that saw a uh, clip of mine about emuna, And I think, I don't know what clip he was talking about, but he says in one of my clips, it says that I was talking about emuna and how when you have a high level of emuna, you could be like an avrech, you could learn all day, or perhaps you could learn and teach, but you don't necessarily have to be in the business world because Hashem will pay for the bills. And he told me that I am completely shameful and it's a uh, ridiculous statement and I should be uh, ashamed of myself for saying such a thing. Why? Because it's not logical. It's not logical for him that money is going to show up to pay the bills without you being on Wall Street, without you being in the garage, fixing cars, without you selling insurance, without you working in the regular business world. It's not logical to him. And how do I know that logic is the most thing, most important thing for him? Is that he told me that his phone number is, first three numbers, whatever they are, logical. I swear to you, that's his number, I'll show you the message after the sure. That's his phone number. Something, 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 logical. So here's someone that considers himself from, considers himself religious. He's saying that 
what we're teaching here is not logical. Good. That means we're following the Torah. Torah says, Zot chukat Torah. What chukat Torah? Paraduma. The part that's not logical to you doesn't make a difference. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It's not always supposed to be logical. Because keep in mind, the logic of the Torah is divine logic. It's not always human logic. We have to earn the ability to understand it. And sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. So, the whole aspect of gaining Olamaba, losing Olamaba, it's hard to understand how such things can be so hard to get, so easy to lose. It's not logical. In Mishnah Gimel, in Avot, Tetvav 3.15, it says the following. Rabbi Lazar Modai Omer, Amechalel et HaKedashim, Vamevazet et HaMoadot, Vamalbin Pnei Chavero Berabim, Vamefer Brito Shel Avraham Avinu, Vamegale Panim Batora Shelo Kaalacha, Afal Pi Shiesh Biedo, Torah Umaasim Tovim, En Lo Chelek Laolam Aba. Shem Erechem, Shem Erechem. Explanation, translation, or follow. Rabbi Elazar, the Moadite, the Moadite, used to say, one who desecrates sacred things, meaning one who desecrates the korbanot, the trumot, the things, the sacrifices, one who desecrates them, one who disgraces the festivals, here it's pertaining to Chola Moed, it's not talking about Yom Kippur, it's not talking about Pesach, about Cholamoid, one who desecrates Cholamoid, one who works on Cholamoid, one who humiliates his fellow in public, makes fun of him, calls him funny names, one who nullifies the covenant of our forefather Avram, the Brit Milah. One who perverts the meaning of the Torah contrary to Alakha. One who decides to change the Torah. Brit Milah, no Brit Milah. Shabbat, no Shabbat. Homosexual, no homosexual. I heard some of these things in a few of my lectures, right? So those few that do all these things, which we'll go over in a moment, what they actually mean, even if they have much Torah and good deeds, have no share in the world to come. Have no lamaba. How many of us know somebody that embarrassed somebody in public? How many of us did it? We have work to do, my friends. So first let's understand what the Mishnah means and then understand what it actually means to lose Olamaba. Where does it go? Who gets it? What happens? Where do I go? We need to understand this because the sum of all things, according to the Rambam, in Ilchot Shuva, the ultimate reward, it's the ultimate reward. That's what you're here for. You're here to work and work and work and work and work and earn Olamaba. 
anything you get in this world as a reward, whether it be children, a husband, a wife, a car, a building, whatever, is just in order to enable you to make more mitzvot in order to get a better ulama. It's not because Hashem is paying you with a car. A person that thinks, according to the Rambam, not me, according to the Rambam, says a person who thinks that Hashem's reward is material things like money, houses, sex, women, men, buildings, anything to do with material is a complete fool who knows nothing about Torah. And the reason, the proof to this, the ra'ayah to this, is that the only reason why we want any of these material things is simply because we ourselves are material. We have bodies. But had our souls been separated from our bodies, these desires would not exist because they would not be relevant to us. Sex would no longer be something necessary in life. A house would no longer be necessary since you have everything. If your soul, you're floating across everything, the galaxy, the universe, the planets, wherever, everywhere is your house. Money is irrelevant. You're a soul. You're floating. You don't, there's no mortgage. You ever see a soul knock on somebody and say, hey, listen, we're trying to collect some stakah? Help us out? No. Souls are rich. They also don't yearn for knowledge. They have it. But they also can't say lies. That's what makes this world Alma the Shikha. That's what makes this world the world of lies. So the Rambam says, if you want if you still want material things, all that means is that you're still a body. But if you think that that's the reward, it's foolish. It's foolish to think such a thing. So now, that we understand that the ultimate reward is something that's beyond our comprehension. Olamaba, it's eternity. We spent 25 years to try to get to a point of earning a good living. We spent 25 years raising kids that eventually may forget us. We spent 25 years trying to develop relationships that may or may not work out. We spent 25 years investing into things that may become obsolete. Let's spend a few moments learning about this eternity. Now, Rabbi Lazar Modai is one of the giants in previous generations. Modi'in is a famous place, the birthplace of the Hasmonians. The Hashmonaim. But according to Rabban Gamliel, Rabbi Lazar Modai, his strength was mainly scriptural exegesis rather than Allah. Meaning things that have to do with Agadah, the background story. Now, if you hear some lectures online today, 
for whatever reason or another, it's become very popular for so-called rabbis or people that are supposed to know Torah to make fun of Agada. Make fun of the Agadas. Make fun of Midrashim. Make fun of things that are not literal in the Torah. Make fun of things that are not just pshat. Say, oh no, this rabbi, he talks about Agadot. That's like fairy tales that completely disqualifies him as a teacher. Well, this Tana that was able to revive the dead, he was an expert in Agadot. He's one of the main sources of where we got most of them. And Rabban Gamliel in Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 55b, Masechet Megillah 15b, and Baba Batra 10b, say, says the same thing, we still need to rely on the opinion of Rabbi Elazar Amodai. Meaning, in order for us to get to our conclusion, whether it be Alacha, or just general understanding of something, we still have to rely on him, on his Agada, on the fairy tale. The so-called fairy tale. So first and foremost, it's good to explain the difference between fairy tale and agada. The midrashim, whether it be in Mi'am Loez or in Gemara or Midrash Agadol or many, many, there's many, many midrashim. If it's a known midrash, meaning it's an acceptable midrash. Whether the majority believe that specific midrash or not is irrelevant. It's still considered 100% divrei chachamim. It's still considered the words, the Torah of the sages. Meaning, that according to the Gemara, Masechet Iruvin, page 21b, kol amal'iz al divrei chachamim nidon betzoar otachat. Anyone who makes fun of anything that the sages said, his end is being in Tzohar Otachat. That's the seventh level of Genom, where the, there's burning fire of feces there, pool of feces, right next to J.C. Penny. So you'll have the same pool right next to him. Why? Because you made fun of the Agadot. So for any of these heroes that like to make fun of Agadot, and, and Midrashim, and the Zohar Kadosh, and all of those things, just know you're not the first one or the last one to do it. There are other people in this pool waiting for you to join them. If you want to make fun of that, want to make fun of the Chachamim, want to make fun of the Agadot, say it's nonsense, doesn't make sense how there's a big uh, snake or there's a big bird or there are things that are beyond our understanding simply because we've never seen it before. If you hear about the technology that the seat, the throne of Shlomo Melech you just learn about just this, this throne, the technology that they had, it's beyond any technology we have today. This is already 3,000 years ago. You hear about the eagle they used to ride, huge eagle used to ride, whether it's literal, figurative, irrelevant. Point is, believe or no believe, not allowed to make fun. Not allowed to make fun. So to say, ah, this is just Zohar. Like one of those people. No, oh, this is just Zohar. Oh, this is just Midrash. This is just this. This is just that. That's making fun. It doesn't actually have to be direct attack. Like there's this imbecile online 
that hates me in Rav Mizrahi and has been spending the last six or seven months trying to torture me. And lately, he innovated himself. He started making videos. Started making videos, mocking our lectures, mocking Rav Mizrahi, and, you know, pretty much destroying his own Alamaba. Miskin, he's Mamasha Miskin, I feel bad for him. But he thinks that he's relieved from any responsibility of shaming a Jew in public, shaming a rabbi in public, shaming a Tamit Chacham in public, shaming a Mizakeh Rabim in public, shaming the sages in public, whatever you want to consider, it doesn't make a difference. Whatever, pick one. Shaming a Jew, shaming a Goy, whatever. Shaming someone in public for really no reason. He thinks he's relieved simply because he talks in hints. He talks in hints, but the hints, everyone understands what they mean. So, for example, in a uh, one uh, video, he uh, mentioned some rabbi's name, but instead of saying, let's say, uh, uh, let's say Goldberg, he said like Funberg. But everyone knows, based on what he's saying, it means Goldberg, and so on and so forth. It's it's obvious hints. So people think they could beat the system. Or when somebody asks you, so uh, what do you think? You think I should hire him? No, I don't want to say in Lashonara. I don't want to say in Lashonara. I'm not saying Lashonara. What you just said is worse than Lashonara, you moron. It's better you say Lashonara than say, I don't want to say Lashonara. Because right now you left everything up to, in the air. It's better you say Lashonara, say he's a liar, he's a thief, he's a this, because at least I'll, I'll minimize it to that. I'll minimize, okay, he's a liar, okay, he's a thief, okay, he's a this. What? I'll minimize, obviously you're not supposed to say anything. But to say, no, 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 I don't want to say Lashonara. Because it's a t- tzaddik. You're a tzaddik. Oh, I don't want to say Lashonara. You know, I, I'm trapped. No, I'm trying to wash myself. I don't want to say Lashonara. You don't want to say Lashonara, you imbecile. You just said the worst Lashonara there is. You said everything. You left everything in the air. No, 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 I don't want to talk. It's the same thing. It's worse. It's worse than do. I don't want to say anything. You can say, I don't know. You can say, let me get back to you. You know, try to sneak out, just like you do when the bill collector comes. Be smart. But to say, no, no, I don't want to say Lashonara, and pretend like you're some tzaddik, you're doing work, you're making it worse. Or some people do this. So what do you think of him? The face. It is, I didn't say anything. I didn't say Lashonara. In the book it says, say Lashonara. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I'm tzaddik. I didn't say anything. What, in the face? Tisha our face? I'm contemplating whether the guy is uh, going to kill me right now just from the face you made. Am I safe right now? What face did you make? Tisha our face that you made? People make faces. They make faces. Ooh, faces. What faces they make. You see somebody's face, you think the guy's a murderer. What happened? No, no, he just didn't pay him $5 on time to be borrowed for a sandwich. But he, oh, right, 30 years he has a face. 30 years he has a face against him. Or the kids, the kids got into a fight in school. He has a face against him. Or he's Ashkenazi, he's Sephardi. Or he's Sephardi, he's not Sephardi. Or all this shtuyod, this sinat chinam garbage that we've been dealing with for 2,000 years. For no reason. What's sinat chinam? What's sinat chinam? Hate for no reason. It's really, that's what sinat chinam is. It's free hate. What's, what does it literally mean? You hate him. Why? No reason. You ever see somebody walk around? Hey, yeah, I hate you. Why? No reason. 
That's sinat chinam. That's what we've been dealing with and haven't been able to fix for 2,000 years. We hate each other for no reason. The fact that you disagree doesn't give you a right to hate me. I could disagree with you. Doesn't give me a right to hate you. Even in the lecture that I sent about homosexuals, I said specifically, yes, it's an abomination. Yes, against the Torah. Yes, it's horrible sin. Doesn't give you a right to hate them. Doesn't give you a right to go beat them up. Their tikkun is being a homosexual. Your tikkun is Chilul Shabbat. What do we hate? We hate the sin, not the sinner. When do we start hating the sinner? When the sinner gets to an extent that he causes other people to sin. Then he is a sin himself. Then he's a machtiya rabim, he's a sin himself. Then we start hating him. Then he's a rasha. Someone that sins, you have no right to hate him. But if he's a machtiya rabim, if he causes other people to sin, like arranging this uh, gay pride parades, having a uh, company that sells pornographic material, having a missionary uh, organization, trying to get people to leave Judaism, trying to get people to insult the Torah, he's getting other people to sin. Yeah, of course, he's a rasha. It's a mitzvah to hate him. But if he's just a simple sinner, he's a sinner. You sin, he sins, you sin. You have no right to hate him. The problem is that for whatever reason or another, at some point, uh, Yetzirah convinces us that if we have a difference of uh, opinion with someone at work, it's okay, that's constructive criticism. Or that's just a debate. It's a debate. I'm going to have a debate with my colleague. What are you going to debate about? I'm going to debate where I think the economy is going to go in five years. How do you know where the economy is going to go in five years? Well, where it's based on analysis. So how do you know which one of you is right? Well, we don't really know. We just have theories. Okay, so in essence, you're just upset at each other for absolutely no reason whatsoever because neither one of you know if you're right until you get after the fact. Fine. It's a difference of opinion. Whoever wins the debate gets the raise. No problem. Now... What if I said, I believe you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat simply because it's not really what I believe, it's simply what it says from God. God wrote it, I saw it. I could show it to you. He, on the other hand, doesn't believe it. He doesn't agree that's what God said. He has no proof of what he says, but he doesn't agree. That gives him no right to hate me. Or me hate him. But for whatever reason or another in our generation... If someone has a different religious belief, then you sometimes will let to hate them. And the real reason is because the one that has the truth is easier to hate because he reminds us that we're living a lie. So now, Rabbi Lazara Modai. fought for the truth he lived in a place where it's actually the Hashmonaim uh, and according to Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara 36b and also Shabbat 17b talks about how they were the ones that made it a uh, punishable sin for uh, a um, a Jew to have relations with a 
non-Jewish woman before, you know, out of wedlock. There was a machloket. Obviously, we were never allowed to marry them, but now they said that's also not only you're not allowed to have relations with them, but if you do, you'd actually, in those times, they'd actually punish the person with lashes. They actually made sure that the halacha is being followed and not just a... Uh, something in the air, like we have today. So very serious people, very serious tzaddikim. So now, Rabbi Lazar is telling us a few things. Seem like they're simple things, but he's telling us that there's a lot on the line depending on us understanding what these things mean. First and foremost, he says, someone who desecrates sacred things. Someone who desecrates sacred things can lose his world to come. Now, simply said, we actually learned from this week's parasha, also anytime it talks about korbanot, it talks about when somebody takes the korban and intentionally ruins it, The it's a surkalet, very serious, serious punishment, because you are messing with something holy. But there's several different ways of unintentional sin. For that, you don't lose your olam abba. There's, four, there's a few different ways, four specific ones that I wrote here in this Luchidush, four different common ways of how someone can ruin a korban unintentionally. Pigul tameh notar v'meila. Pigul is when you're supposed to bring a korban, you bring a sacrifice, but in reality, you don't have the right thoughts. Meaning, it's supposed to be a koban for, let's say, you, you made a sin, and you bring a koban to repent. But in reality, inside, you're not sorry. You're not sorry. You made some type of sin, and your mind said, I'm doing the same thing next weekend. I can't wait until this koban is over, so I can go back and make the sin again. It says, Torah says, in Shemaim, the koban is worthless. Oh, you just lost $10,000. You brought the cow, Nothing happens. It's pigul. It's worthless. What is this equivalent to? Prayer without kavanah. After the korbanot were discontinued when the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, Chazal told us that we learned from the Prophet, I believe it was Chagai, in uh, chapter 14, verse 14, that now our our korbanot, our sacrifices will be our prayers. So when we pray, shachrit, mincha, arvit, that's our korban. That's our korban. That's our sacrifice. So that means, if you came, you made sins, you gotta do a sacrifice. I'm sorry, Hashem. Patanu, avinu, pashanu. Right? Now if you, come in Hashem, listen Hashem, yesterday, it's horrible. Horrible, I did this, I did this. You know, Hashem, but I'm just saying, I know, I know, you know, I'm just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. By the way, Hashem, what do you think of the Braves against the Mets? Who do you, you think that the Mets should have won? I think if you would have, you start thinking about baseball in the middle of prayer. You just told Hashem, I'm sorry, Hashem, I overcharged the guy, I really shouldn't, I did this, I stole, I, did, I lied, I yelled at my wife, I did. But what do you think about the Mets? Who do you think is going to win the UFC fight? Who do you think is this? What do you think about the stock market? Is it overpriced? Is it underpriced? Do you think the Fed should increase Fed rates? Guess what you're thinking about in prayer. You're thinking about the Fed rates 
in prayer because it's going to affect your portfolio. You have a korban on the line right now. You have a korban. The whole korban is going to the garbage right now because you're thinking about the Fed rates. You're thinking about your stock portfolio on E-Trade. That's pigul. Any of us did that one time? Show of hands, I did. Tameh, Tameh, Tameh is impure. You made the Koban impure. Something no good. What happens? What's the cause of this? Cause? Lack of Yilah. In reality, you have no Yilat In reality, all of us here don't have enough Yilat don't have enough Yirat Shemaim. Enough Yirat Shemaim. Enough fear of Hashem. All of us here, and in my opinion, I don't know the whole world, but I don't think most people in the world have enough Yirat Shemaim. Because when you read the books, the writings of the Ba'alea Musal, Rabbi Israel Misalant, in the Gemara, the sages, you see the fear of Hashem that they have. It's, it's unbelievable. Mamash, unbelievable. I listen to less, some, some of these lectures or read some of these books and sometimes I cry. Why do I cry? I cry for myself. I'm so far from this. It's like a different planet. It's like a different species. I mean, it's just they really ask, what does God think about everything? We're lucky if we ask what God thinks once a week. Them all day. It's unbelievable. Someone that has a problem doesn't have enough Yad Shemaim. He's more likely to make the Koban Tameh. Why? Because he's not careful. What's the difference, according to Gemara, what's the difference between someone that's righteous and someone that's Amaaretz? They both know Torah. Amaaretz and someone that's righteous. They both know Torah. Abur is ignorant. A lot of people say that this guy doesn't know anything. He's an Amaret. That's not a good term. Someone doesn't know anything is a bull. But someone's Amaret, he actually knows. He knows some Torah. So what's the difference between him and the Tzadik? The Amaret is not careful with pure purity issues. He's not Yerat Shemayim. That's the reality. That's the Amaret. That makes most of us that. So, Rabbi Yisrael Misalant in Or Yisrael says, Hashem tells the Prophet, my number one treasure is Yirat Shemayim. Yirat Hashem, Iyotzaro. says in the Prophet, says in the Torah, it's an actual verse in the Torah, Yirat Hashem, fear of Hashem, that's what Hashem has in His treasure chest. That's it. The merits of all of mankind. What is the merit? Whatever Yirat Shemaim they have. Whatever culminates, whatever Yirat Shemaim comes out of it, that's the what he has in a treasure chest. You want any merits in Shemaim? It has to come from Yirat Shemaim. You're doing a mitzvah because of Yirat Shemaim. You're not doing a mitzvah because you think you're going to get a car for it. So Rabbi Yisrael Misalant says, why is it that Yirat Shemaim Iyotzaro? Why is Yirat Shemaim considered such a big deal in Hashem's mind? Why? 
It says, because Yirat Shamayim is 100% free choice. Everything is from heaven, except the fear of heaven. Whether you're tall, you're short, you're good looking, you're ugly, you're fat, you're skinny, you're rich, you're poor, you're married, you're single, you have kids, you don't have kids. Succeed, fail. Everything is from Hashem. Whether you came to this world or not, whether you're going to leave this world or not, and when, not up to you. You can try to kill yourself by me 500 times. Hashem doesn't want you to die. He won't let you die. You could ask Hashem to make you reborn a million times. It's not going to happen. And if it does, you're not going to remember. Everything is from Hashem. Except if you fear Him. It's 100% free choice, He says. So what? makes it such a big deal. He says that while it's 100% free choice, it's actually against logic for us to want it. So the fact that we yearn for it, he removed it from, he removed the desire for Yirat Shamayim from us naturally. So to want Yirat Shamayim, it's mamash against our own nature, even though it's the purpose of our, of our existence. And he says in Sefer Dvarim, chapter 30, verse 19, I have given you life and death, I have given life and death before you, blessing and curse, and you shall choose life. Meaning, he said, at first glance, I'm giving you a choice. Life and death, blessing and curse. But then he's telling you the choice, the right choice, I'm giving you a free, you know, I'm giving you a cheat sheet. The right answer is, you choose life. Choose life. What does it mean, choose life? Choose your mind. That's how you get to life. So now, when you don't have your mind, you're much more likely to ruin the Kurban. Three, Notal. Notal is when someone leaves over parts of the offering, of the, of the uh, sacrifice that should be eaten, Beyond the time, you're supposed to eat it, let's say, between, you know, within 24 hours. And you say, no, no, I'm going to leave some for tomorrow. Like some people like to eat leftovers. Maybe eat leftovers of barbecue. Pretty good. Heat them up again. It's like it's new. It says, over here, you have rules. You have rules for the koban. Who makes the sin? Who made the sin? Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael, all of them made the sin. When? With the man. Hashem said, I'm going to give you just enough every day for you to eat everything that day. Some of them, what they did, they left some for tomorrow. Why did they leave some for tomorrow? Why did somebody at the times of the Bet HaMikdash leave some korbanot for tomorrow? Why? No emunah. You have no emunah. Why are you saving so much money in your IRA account and you're not giving any tzedakah? Why? Why are you not giving any tzedakah? Why? Why give the tzedakah fifty dollars, the brand new car fifty thousand? Why? If no muna, no muna. Everybody wants to. No, no. I'm just uh, saving for a rainy day. What? It rains that bad in your in your neighborhood? You have to buy a whole new house every time it rains? No, I'm just saving for my retirement. You're thirty-five years old. 
So someone has no emunah, makes the sin of notar. And last but not least, me'ilah. Me'ilah is someone that takes the actual sacrifice, steals it, or uses it for his own personal benefit. That's me'ilah. Who does that? Someone that's selfish. Someone that's egotistical and only thinks that the world revolves around them. You ever know one of those people? I can name five without really thinking much. By default, I know at least five. People that think that the whole world revolves around them. Everyone's wrong except them. Somehow they're always a victim, even though everyone suffers because of them. So you know one of those people. You're laughing, so you definitely know at least one person. Okay, so at least I'm not the only one. Oh, Hashem. So he says, someone that has that's completely selfish is going to make this sin. But that still does not explain why disgracing the Koban make me lose the world, world to come. Hard. Until we go to the Gemara and Masechet Brachot. Gemara and Masechet Brachot, page 63a. It says, I think you mentioned this a few weeks ago. This so it says, why is the parasha in the five books of Moses, why is the parasha, parashat Naso, which talks about the sota, the wayward woman, right next to the parasha that talks about the trumot, the truma, truma was the, uh, in essence, the uh, gifts you would give the kohanim, the kohen. It was a, like they would give them produce and fruits. You give, you'd have to, you were responsible for giving maasel, you're responsible for giving the trumot to the kohanim. So Chazal asked, why is the craziness that happens for the wayward woman, if someone is, if a woman is suspected of cheating, there's a whole process of how they verify whether she cheated on her husband or not. After she was caught being secluded with a man that's not a husband in a closed room, now they don't know if she was with him or not, but they have to have a way of verifying in the times of Bet Mikdash. How? They bring her to the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol, after intimidating her and trying to get her to admit that she cheated on her husband, if she doesn't admit, they give her the um, holy water with the name of a, the uh, ink from the name of Hashem, and she drinks it. If she lied about cheating on her husband and she did cheat on him, she explodes and dies. If she didn't lie, then she gets a blessing. So the question first comes: Is why does she go through all of this craziness if she didn't do it? Because either way, she sinned. Just a level of sin. If she, if she did it, obviously, if she sinned, if she went with a, uh, with a man that's not her husband, then obviously this is a horrible, horrible sin. 
Number one, she's not, you know, if she uh, went through with the whole process, she dies. If she admits that she sinned, then they, uh, they don't kill her, but she's not allowed to be with her husband anymore, and she's also not allowed to be with the man that she cheated with. She's not allowed to be with either one. Uh, so that's a couple of outcomes. The third outcome is if she didn't cheat, it's, sorry, it's still a very, very horrific process. If you read about it in the Masechet Sota, it's a horrific process of what she goes through. They intimidate her, they make her walk around for a while to make her tired. Eventually, they get to a point of taking her kisu uh, rosh and uh, opening it to show her hair, which was very, very embarrassing for anyone that knows what uh, significance kisu rosh is for a woman, for a Jewish woman in, in, in Torah is. They, uh, they would know that even the prostitutes, even the prostitutes in Torah would have a kisu rosh. Why? Because kolaisha, uh, the, uh, the, the kolaisha erva, everything in a woman is, is considered nakedness, specifically our hair. A woman's hair is considered nakedness. It's as if you're looking at Shemir Chem, you're looking at her private parts. Same thing. Why? That's her beauty. Jewish women today argue with us. No, but this, but that. That's what it says in the Torah. Go fight with Hashem. This is the whole argument behind, uh, against why, you know, why women that say that they're covering their hair, but they're covering it with a wig. I don't know how they're fulfilling a mitzvah. Okay, so it's not your hair, but it's still hair. So to the average person, it still looks like you're single. Still looks like nakedness. He doesn't know it's a wig. Most women can't tell that another woman's wearing a wig, let alone a man. A man definitely can't tell. And if he can, he, if he can tell, he's probably not straight, so it doesn't really make a difference. Am I lying? So, here you have a situation where a woman goes through this whole process. And the ultimate part is they show her hair. Now, why is she going through this whole process if she didn't cheat? Because either way, she sinned. What did she sin? She was with another man in a closed room after getting warned. She still did it again, and which is obviously not allowed. So she still violated modesty laws. She still violated the laws of Yichud. You're not allowed. A Jewish man is not allowed to be alone with one woman or two women. Not allowed. So, unless it's a public area. Unless there's people walking in and out, unless it's a public area. But if it's just, let's say, for example, you want to have a meeting with your secretary, with your vice president, you're a man, she's a woman, there's nobody else that's allowed in, not allowed. Unless the door is open, people can come in and out. But if it's just uh, people that have, let's say, for example, independent contractors or lawyers or doctors or people that have businesses and they have a uh, female that works with them, or a male, or you know, a different sex that works with them, they have to make sure that whatever they want to meet, it's when everybody else is in the office. Don't stay in the office alone. That's how marriages get destroyed. This is not just uh, a nonsensical law. This is actual law that is very easy to understand. Many marriages that have been destroyed have been destroyed because of what happens in the office. People get too comfortable with each other. People get too comfortable with each other. And you spend enough time with somebody that you work with, you eventually fall in love with them. You eventually want to do something. So for all of these years, like, no, 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 she's just my colleague. There's no such thing. Men don't think like that. You could say you think like that. You just don't. You don't. So be safe by making sure you follow Allah and you don't put yourself in a scenario 
where you're alone with a woman. Now, moving forward, it says here that this parasha that talks about the whole process of sota, the wayward woman, is connected to the same to a parasha that talks about giving the kohanim maser their their uh, their fair share of your income, and also the tumot. So Gemara says, why? What's I mean? You everything is connected for a reason. There's no such thing as one parasha is next to another parasha just because. No such thing. Why is it there? So Gemara answers. Because it's to teach us that whoever possesses a Tuma or Maser, whoever has a Tuma, has a Maser, meaning whoever is in a position where he is supposed to give Tzedakah, he's supposed to give the Kohen the Maser, he's supposed to give the Kohen the Tumot, but he chooses not to. It's cheap, stingy, stingy people. To learn from this connection that the punishment is that eventually he's going to need the coin service. How is he going to need the coin service? He's going to need to ask the coin if his wife is cheating on him. So want to be stingy? Just know that you're putting your marriage on the line. Now this doesn't necessarily need to be just from the uh, learned from the Gemara. This is also something that you could know from just general Know overall that the uh, people that tend to be cheap and stingy with staka are also stingy with many other things. It's due to selfishness. It's due to thinking that the world revolves around you, the world owes you, and it's due to an infatuation with money. When you love something, you don't want to give it away. So when you love money, you don't want to give it away. So what happens is when someone is cheap on tzedakah, more times than not, they're also cheap with their spouse. More times than not, they also don't want to give any money to their wife. And what ends up happening is that the wife eventually grows sick of it. She grows sick of asking you for $100 so she can buy groceries for the house. She grows sick of asking you for another $100 so she can act like a grown-up and have spending money. She grows sick of asking you for money to pay for the tuition. She grows sick of asking you for things like she's a little kid, like it's allowance. She grows sick of never getting a present. She grows sick of you not wanting to go to the bathroom so you don't have to buy another sandwich. She's sick of that gross behavior of you loving money so much that everyone has to walk on eggshells just to see if you're going to spend the dollar on the vending machine or not. She's sick of it. Enough. What happens? She eventually looks for the money somewhere else. The minute she's sick of it and she breaks, she goes and finds it somewhere else. And that is one of the things that leads to many, many divorces. It's not that the woman got into the marriage with an intention to divorce him. It's not that she married him for the money either. But she also didn't want to marry someone that's going to keep on such a short leash. She's going to treat it like a little baby where she has to give him an uh, Excel spreadsheet every time she has expenses. You want a happy wife? Be generous. Be generous. 
Don't be one of these people that's like counts every five dollars. Oh, you know, but you spend 150. Oh, it's okay, 155 this week. You make a face. You know, these faces people make, you just ruin. By the time you give her the money, she doesn't even want to go anywhere. You make her feel like she's worthless. The fact that she just gave you three, four, five kids, you make it like it's like no big deal. No big deal. Yeah, so what? So she carried it for nine months. Okay, so nine months, nine months, nine months, 27 months, big deal. I've been working for 20 years. Why? I didn't, it wasn't hard for me to pay for the kids. It's hard for you. She carried the kids. You're shocked. You cheap, stingy person. She carried, she brought kids. She brought more you into the world. A woman doing appreciate is a different story. It's a different story. But a man that the, the the man enables them. Men enable women to get to a point of being sick of the whole money issue. Now, on another hand, if you have a woman that doesn't appreciate, regardless of what you're giving her, that means something went wrong. But something much deeper. Meaning she doesn't appreciate it because she doesn't want it. She wants something else. It has nothing to do with money. When a person, when a man is cheap, then it's his specific problem. Main reason why men are cheap is number one, they love money too much. They have an obsession with money. Two, they love control. They feel like they can, you know, it's like a little carrot on top of the wife. She has to beg for the hundred dollars or the five hundred dollars or whatever it is which is the stupidest thing in the world for a man to do. It's 100% a guarantee for her to eventually hate you. She's eventually going to hate you, despise you, and you're not going to be able to fix it. It's too late. It's too late. By the time she got to a point where you crossed the line, five years, ten years, twenty years of you stingy, and she got to a point, that's it, I hate him, can't change it. She hates you. You give a million dollars, she hates you. That's it. It's like it lost its taste. Plus, it's taste. I don't want it anymore. I've been begging for 20 years for $500 a week. The guy's like doing me a favor. Now he wants to give me $10,000 a week. I don't want $10,000. I already have everything I want. I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to go anymore. I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. Because I, well, I have to beg for it when I'm a little kid. I could have had a career. I could have had this. I could have had that. But instead, I brought kids to the world. I took care of the kids. I took care of him. What? It wasn't, wasn't worth anything every day I did? So a cheap husband destroys a wife. Destroys. Why? Because he makes all of her work seem like it's worthless. And such a husband deserves all the punishment he gets. Deserves it. Why? Because now he's not just ruining himself, his own marriage. He's ruining her life. On the other hand, as far as a woman who doesn't appreciate what you give her, it's not that a woman doesn't appreciate it. It's that that's not what she wants. She wants you to give her time. You're giving her a bracelet. She wants you to give her love. You're giving her flowers. She wants you to give her attention and listen to whatever story she has to say. And you're giving her a car. She doesn't want it. She doesn't want a car. She has a car. She doesn't want the flowers. She wants your time. So... This issue of lack of appreciation more times than not, more times, not all the time, more times than not is because of a lack of communication. 
you think you can solve every problem by giving her a pacifier? She's saying, I don't want a pacifier. I'm not a baby. I want you. I want your time. I want your words. I want your ear. I want attention. Why? I just feel like it. I feel like I deserve it. I feel like, I don't know, I'm your wife. I deserve some attention. Well, but I'm busy. Okay, so go marry somebody else then. I married you because I want your attention. I don't want the car. I don't want the house. Yeah, but I just bought you a $5 million house. Yes, I'm by myself in the $5 million house all the time. I'd rather have a $5 house with you in it. If I wanted to marry the house, I should marry the house. He doesn't talk back. So problem is with situations where the wife doesn't appreciate a lot of material is usually because there's too much material, very, very little everything else. That's nine out of ten times is the main reason. Aside from that is because there's a deeper problem. She may just not like you. She may not just, not you specifically, obviously. Uh, She just may not like the person. She has something else on her mind. Like there's some line that was crossed at some point that led to this, that it doesn't matter what he does, doesn't matter to her. Could be because he was cheap. So now that he's giving her money, she doesn't want it anymore. Could be because he didn't pay attention to her. Now that he wants to give her attention, she doesn't want the attention anymore. Could be because he cheated on her. Now that he wants to give her attention, he's like, I don't want to touch you. You cheated on me. You violated our relationship. Guys think that, oh, no, no, I'm going to, you know, so what? She caught me cheat. So what? I'm honest now. You're tamen now to her. Once a husband cheats on a wife, he's tamen. It's impossible to ever bring back the relationship to what it was. Even if somehow you convince her to stay with you. She's never ever going to be as loving and open with you as she was originally. Why? Because you violated the trust. You violated rule number one. Rule number one of marriage, it's me and you. Not me and you and somebody else. And believe it or not, for all those men out there, it's not the sex that she cares about. It's that you gave your time to some other woman. Women don't think like men. We're animals. We think that it's just purely the physical part. It's not that. Obviously that bothers her. And it grosses her out. But the part that bothers a woman the most is that you gave her time to this woman. It's my stuff. I own it. I've signed the ketubah. You gave it to some lady. The worst. So anybody that knows a little bit, a little bit of sechel, it's very easy to be happily married. All you got to do is work on it every day. You work on your job every day, right? So work on this too. Most important part is make sure the woman has confidence. She has no confidence. She's never going to be happy. If you're going to put her in a position where she has to constantly depend on you because you're treating her like a little baby. Oh no, honey, I need $100. Okay, it's the $100 again. Like you make her feel bad for needing money. You make her feeling bad for, for living. Eventually, she's going to be fed up. Eventually, she's not going to want to be with you. And to fix that is almost impossible. Nothing is impossible. It's almost impossible. So, one of the main things that leads to all of this balagan we just talked about, one of the things is being cheap. Being cheap. Being cheap, so you know, is something 
that Hashem considers disgusting. It's something that Hashem hates. There's a few people that Hashem hates. It says in the Gemara, one of the people that He hates is someone who's cheap. Hashem hates cheap people. Why does He hate cheap people? What is he? He doesn't say he hates uh, Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the Beth Megiddash. And say he hates Paro, killed millions of Jews more than Hitler. Doesn't say he hates Paro. But he hates cheap person. Why is he hate cheap people? What do you have against them? He hates cheap Jews. Why? He hates cheap Jews so much that he made the Goim remind us. It's a very stereotypical thing to think that Jews are cheap, even though, by the way, by statistics, Jews are the most generous people of all. If you look at all foundations and and charities and so on, and what Jews donate per capita versus the goyim, there's no comparison. Jews donate a lot more money. The problem is we donate to a lot of garbage. We donate to dolphins instead of to souls. We donate to save the elephant instead of save the Jew. We donate to the Palestinians instead of to, to the Bnei Torah. The problem in today's Jewish world is that there's more Jews that are pro-Palestinian and Christian than there are pro-Jews. That's the problem. More of us Jews are pro-Palestinian terrorists, Arab terrorists, ISIS terrorists, all of these terrorists. More Jews are pro-idol worship. Christianity, Catholicism, Buddhism, Taoism, whatever-ism, more of them are that than pro-Torah, than pro-Judaism. Much more. Seven to one, eight to one ratio. It's not even a comparison. Not even a comparison. But that doesn't stop us from being generous. We're still generous people. We're just generous in the wrong place. So Hashem hates it. Hashem hates it when even that we're not able to do. Something that He instilled into every single Jew is the ability to be generous. To know whether you are a descendant of Abraham Avinu, you have to be generous. If you're not generous, you're questionable. It's questionable if you're actually a descendant of Abraham Avinu. It's questionable. Why? Because Hashem says, Person as cheap, I hate him. Why? He's the opposite of me. If you're already connecting to Hashem, that means you're trying to emulate him. You're trying to learn from him. You're connecting to Hashem because he's great. He's perfect. Therefore, that means you're trying to also be better. A better version of you. What is Hashem? He's the most generous of all. To such an extent that he only gives and never receives. Because he already has everything. He already has everything. He gets nothing from us. Nothing. This is a very, very important rule to understand in Judaism. That Hashem does not get anything from us. Nothing. Prayer is for us. Learning Torah is from us. It's for ourselves. Ma'asim tovim for ourselves. Everything is for us. He is perfect with or without us. To such an extent that in the book of Rishit Chochmah, it talks about, it brings up a uh, Nehemiah Tetvav 
צריך להסביר, אתה מחיה את כולם, ואילו חס וחלילה יצויר העדר שפעו מכל העולמות, אפילו רגע אחד יתבלו כולם, והיו כולו היו, והיו כלא היו, כי כולם צריכים אליו, והוא אינו צריך להם. In so many words it says, if for a second, in my own words, if for a second, for a second, someone would think that you need them, it's better that the whole world would not exist than for anyone to ever think that you need us. That you need us for anything. It's better for all of us to never be. I'm Israel, everything. The whole world to not be at all, to never come to existence. Then for anyone to ever think that Hashem benefits in any way whatsoever from us, that He needs us for anything. So here you have Hashem Barach, the King of Kings that only gives Never receives. He says, you learn my Torah and you're still cheap? It's the opposite of me. All you're doing is receiving because I give you panasa. I give you a wife. I give you a husband. I give you kids. I give you a house. I give you a building. I give you a job. I give you a car. I give you air to breathe. I give you food to eat. I give you vision. I give you eyes. I give you ears. I give you everything. All you're doing is giving and you're not willing to give a little bit back. Nothing. You're the opposite of me. I hate you. You learn nothing from me. If you connected to me, you try to be like me. Something. Something. So being cheap is mamash, a despised trait to have, but it's a very, very difficult midah to overcome. Once someone has this difficult midah, it's no different than any other midah that's difficult to overcome, whether it be anger, or it'd be uh, someone that has anxiety, or someone that has any other type of bad midah. You have to work on it. You have to work on your stinginess. The Rambam says there's a way to work on it, a very simple, effective way to work on it. Now, obviously, for you to give $100, it's like you giving your neshama. Sometimes, there's in the Gemara, it's written. It says somebody, they like their body, they like their body, but they like their money more than their body. Meaning, they want to die and not give a dollar. You tell the guy, listen, according to Arizal, if you waste seed one time, one time you waste seed, you have to fast 83 times. For each time you wasted seed. That means that pretty much the average teenager, by the time he saw my lecture for three hours, he has to fast for three gilgulim. This life, the next life, the next Gilgul, the Mashiach comes, the Mashiach goes. He has to fast, and he's still not finished fasting. He's still not finished fasting. So Ariza said, listen, what you're supposed to do is 83 fasts, or 86 fasts. I think it's 83. Give or take, over under 83. Point is, it's a lot, 80-something. I think it's 86, actually. But anyway... None of us are fasting any 80-something. We're not fasting 80-nothings. What do we do? Give tzedakah. Give tzedakah equivalent to, the eight, to that many fasts. Meaning, 
80-something meals. Let's say if it's 85, 85 meals. So $850. Which means you're going to have to give a lot of staggah. But eventually you get rid of the sin. You can fix it. You tell a guy this, I'd rather fast, I'd rather die. I'll fast for the rest of my life. What do you mean? But you have to eat at some point. No, no, it's okay. I don't have to eat. What do you mean? But you have to eat. No, 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 it's okay. What happens? But you, no, I'm not giving. I'm not giving eight hundred fifty dollars. He's not going to give eight hundred fifty dollars. He's not going to do it. Why? He loves his money more than his body. He loves his money more than his body. This is a very, very sad situation. It's very common. Thank you for coming. Good news, they already told me ahead of time. Oh, all right. So, when someone likes their money more than their body, this is a very, very difficult thing to overcome, but there's a way to do it. The Rambam says, now obviously you're going to have to give, but you're not going to give 850 bucks. So take 100, take 100, instead of giving 100 to one of them, that maybe you're going to be able to help him with groceries for the week. Give one dollar, one dollar to a hundred of them, to a hundred different people, a hundred different places. You're not really helping anyone, by the way, except yourself. The hundred dollars, you give a homeless guy a dollar, by the way, just so you guys know. Like if you think that you're going to Gan Eden because you gave a homeless guy a dollar, you're not. I'm just, I'm not trying to ruin your whole party. No one goes to Gan Eden for giving the homeless guy a dollar. First of all, I think in our generation, it's almost considered like lower than a puta already. You can, I don't know, can you even buy gum with a dollar anymore? Barely. So you could lower your life by another seven, eight minutes with a dollar. Okay, Beseda. So, you're not really doing much with a dollar, but people give themselves like 15 pats on the back that they give a dollar to the homeless guy on the way to their office every day. For 20 years, they're giving the guy a dollar. You give the guy 20 years ago a job, he'd be better off than the dollar every day. But anyway, giving 100 people a dollar, 100 organizations a dollar, is not really helping them. I can tell you sometimes, I had a few people follow this advice, and they started sending me like $3 a day. $3 a day. They would send me $3 a day. One guy was sending me a dollar a day for a while. And uh, I guess maybe they were using for this. Maybe I said this in a different shiur. Anyway, they did this for a while. They'd send a dollar in or three dollars in. Um, and uh, what they didn't know is that if you give, you're sending me a dollar, by the time I get the dollar, there's only about 60 cents left. Because the, you know, the, 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 the bank is a minimum amount of fee that they're willing to take. It's not, you know, they charge, let's say, for example, PayPal charges, let's say, around, I don't know, 3, 3% or something like that. So if somebody sends, donates $100, we end up getting, let's say, 97, give or take. But that 3% is a minimum, meaning that if you send me a dollar, they're not taking 3 cents. It's a minimum charge, which is like something like 30 cents or 40 cents, which means if you send me a dollar, yeah, thank you for the dollar, but by the time I got it, it's 40, 50 cents, it's 60 cents. I can't even buy uh, half a gum with it. Even a cigarette I can't buy. Because I don't smoke. So, but what do you do? Why, start, why still give this dollar to 100 people instead of giving 100 to the Avrech? Because if you have this bad midah of being stingy, the Rambam says that by giving a dollar to 100 different people, 
You're going to get yourself used to giving. And you're going to start eventually enjoying it. You're eventually going to start enjoying because you're seeing so many people that you're affecting. You're seeing smiles, you're seeing thank you letters, you're seeing thank you emails, even if it's automated. There's just so much thank you and it's making your neshama, it's purifying your neshama. Little by little, you're like, oh, you know what? Let me give 10 bucks to each guy. Wow. By the time you give $100, it's like Mashiach is here, Mashiach is here. And this is one of the things that we have to work on because unfortunately today we live in a generation of people that either they give to the wrong places or they're just very cheap. Very, very, very stingy, stingy generation. And again, this is not to offend anyone. This is just a reality. It's a mamash, a reality. People have a hard time giving. It's hard for them to give. They like money so much. I understand. Tikkun that Chazal had against idol worship. People always ask me, how is it that the sages lived at the times where there were miracles every day at the Bet HaMikdash to worship some idol? How can it be? You've seen God's work 24-7. Seeing a pillar of smoke stand in the middle of the ground over there, not moving. You're seeing different miracles, stuff flying, stuff moving. There's voices coming out of the sky. You're going to go worship some statue? You go to Chinatown? How can it work? How? What happened? Chazal explains to us first and foremost that the actual uh, idol worship at the time was very different than today's as far as it actually did have certain powers and so on. But further than that, Hashem instilled the desire for idolatry in that generation, until actual sages prayed for Hashem to remove it. They said, we can't overcome this. Give us something else. Now Hashem did give us something else, but it's still the same thing. It's called money. In this generation, our form of idolatry is money. People worship money. They literally are willing to die for money. They spend 20 hours a day working for money, chasing money. They're willing to sacrifice their life, their marriage, their kids, their future, their everything, their freedom for money. So when you finally ask them to give you money, to donate some money, it's like you're asking them for their life. You know, the Gemara has several names for money. One of it is Damim. One of it is Bloods. Why? Because they already know at that time that some people consider money more valuable than their blood. More valuable than their life. So first and foremost, we need to understand that this is a known problem already in the Torah. Second, it's fixable. Third, you have to fix it. And the reason why is because everything is on the line. In the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, Page uh, I think 17, I think 17b, um, it uh, talks about how there is a korban truma, the truma that's supposed to be given to the Kohanim, but there's a way to beat the system. There's a way to not give it. 
either by ruining the korban on purpose, making it tameh on purpose, or by saying, no, no, you know, I'm just going to do it later, and planting the actual produce or the fruit, planting it in the ground, and, inst- and what comes out of it ends up being chulin, a different type of korban that's or offering that you don't have to give to the kohen. So the sages instilled a decree that whatever it, whatever goes into the ground stays in the same status. Meaning, if it goes into the ground, tameh, it stays tameh. If it goes into the ground, tuma, it stays tuma. You can't beat the system. Why? A protection against stingy people. So nobody tries to beat the system and tries to avoid giving the tuma to the Kohanim. Now I asked myself initially when I was learning this with Sunny. Really, the Bet HaMikdash, the Kohanim, that had millions and millions of people giving them tumot, really cared about a few stingy people? Bet HaMikdash, Kodesh Kodashim, had money from heaven. Really care about a few stingy people? Really? What, they're running, they're, they're asking for staka, going door to door, telling people to donate a dollar for a CD, like we're trying to. And please send, send a dollar, you beg people a dollar, tell you, oh yeah, do this, do this, they send you $10. I have one guy told me about how big his house is, 30 times. 30 times he called me, oh yeah, I have a house, yeah, if anytime you want to come to the house, and he told me about this, I know how big his house is already, I know the square footage in my mind already. I've never seen this house, but I know how big his house is. Come, when you come here, no, you'll be in a house, because we have a big house. Okay, big house. And you know, come to the house, and we have a big house. Okay, you have a big house. And a half hour conversation, I heard big house at least 80 times. A little time passed, we talked again. Another 15 minute conversation. This time, big house, 70 times, not 80. Every time I talk to him, he tells me about the biggest houses. Because so he asked me one time, can I do anything? Can I do anything? I said, listen, you know, we have a nonprofit organization. I don't charge for lectures. But everything we do costs money. Motzei Shabbat, came out of Motzei Shabbat, I get news from my team. Three of our systems are down. One guy in Costa Rica, his system went down, but Hashem, he was able to fix it. Another guy in Bulgaria, his system went down, cost $550 to fix. Another one in India went down, it's going to cost about $1,000 by the time we replace it. So just Motzei Shabbat, already $2,000 came out of the pocket because there were a few other expenses. Just to get out of Shabbat. To get out of Shabbat, you wake up $2,000. Good morning. Sunday morning, you have a few more expenses. On Monday morning, you have more expenses. All this stuff costs money. Okay, yes, the CDs are free, but they cost money. The lectures are free, but it costs money. The videos are free, but they cost money. The staff... There's staff, there's people, there's videos, there's contractors. The app is going to be free, but it costs money. If anyone understood how much money we need for what we need to do, the budget that I put on is a complete lie. I said a year ago we're going to need three quarters of a million dollars to do what we want to do for the next year. In reality, you can add three zeros to it if you really want to do what we want to do. But if you compare the donations to what's actually coming out, I have no idea, other than a miracle from Hashem, I have no idea how we're operating. Because the amount of donations coming in, nowhere near how much is coming out, but somehow it works. Somehow Hashem is making it work. So I don't raise money. I don't call rich people and say, Hey, Mr. Jones, do you want to donate to my organization? Number one, because, I don't know, I guess maybe I have too, too much pride. 
But the second reason is because I want to spend my time actually doing Kiruv. I don't want to go collect money. If I want to go into business, I go back to Wall Street. So you want to learn Torah, you want to teach Torah, you want to help people. So the only thing I ask for people is like, listen, if you like it, if you benefited out of it, if it changed your life like you told me it changed your life, it changed your marriage, it changed your kids, it changed your religion, it changed your belief, it changed everything. Give us a dollar a day. Give us, give us a dollar a day. Don't give us a million dollars. I don't want your house. I don't want the big house. Not the five, the, the big house that you have. Keep it. You keep the house. I don't want the house. A dollar a day. Because if you have, just the last month, we have 2,000 new visitors. 2,000 new people. Just the last month, we have, Baruch Hashem, almost a million people. A million views of our videos every month. I don't know if it's a million people, but there's a, a lot of people. This channel has 2,000, the other group has 8,000, the other group has 10,000, the other group has 6,000. Everyone's Baruch Hashem is a lot. And the team, most of them are volunteers, but some of them cost money regardless. So if just these 2,000 people, just these 2,000 people, each give us a dollar a day, give us a bamba, give us one bamba a day. You give your kid bamba? Like Rav Nisim again used to say, Zatzal, say, give me bamba a day. You give your kid a bamba, give us a bamba a day. It's $30 a month. 2,000 people, $60,000 a month. That, Baruch Hashem, is, gets us to catch up to last year's budget. Hopefully the other 8,000, 10,000, 20,000 people that watch us could also donate a dollar a day. If you're already donating $100 a day, don't go down to 30. But somebody, you get, people need to understand, you need to help. It's, it's free, but it costs money. It's, it's free, but it costs money. None of it came to us. Oh Hashem, oh Hashem, good for him. Good for him. He has, he has a, uh, he has, he has schut. Key is people need to understand. You need to help. You need to overcome the stinginess. The stinginess is killing you. It's mamash killing you. And this is the last source we'll talk about, and then we'll move on to the next subject. In the Gemara and Masechet Shabbat, it says that there is a special decree they made for stingy people. A special decree they changed the rules. Why? Bet Mikdash was running out of money. The rabbis needed to go collect money. No, my friend. No, no, it wasn't because the Bet HaMikdash was short on money. No, it wasn't because they really cared that you were stingy or not stingy. They didn't need your money. Why? Because they knew this Mishnah. They knew this Mishnah. They knew that if you're going to be a stingy person, you're also going to ruin the Koban. And if you ruin the Koban, we learned from this Mishnah, you have no share of the world to come. If you're stingy, eventually you're going to ruin your, your world to come. That's why. So people say, no, no, I give it to the Red Cross. Okay, good luck. It's not considered tzedakah. It's considered avera. It's considered a sin to give it to things that are against Judaism. So it's time for us to wake up, start understanding where we put our money, what we're doing with our money, and really start really getting over this, this desire. It's time. It's time. Next, Amalbin Pnei Chavero Berabim. 
This, unfortunately, is something all of us have done at some point or another, and we obviously have to work on. This is someone who humiliates his fellow in public. In uh, this week's parasha, as I always told you, there's always something beautiful in the week's parasha that you could connect to everything. In this week's parasha, when it talks about the korbanot, and if a korban becomes pure, impure, after that it talks about what happens if uh, one Jew touches a dead body. He becomes tameh, and then he is avatum'ah, he makes other things tameh. If there is a dead body in the room, how does it affect everything else? So it says, if there's an open vessel, there's a verse in chapter 19, verse 15. It says, Any open vessel, which they're referring to a uh, like an earthenware vessel, like clay, any open vessel that has no cover fastened to it is contaminated. Meaning, it's here we learn that uh, with uh, earthenware type of... Uh, 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 vessels, their tumah, you can't make them tameh from the outside. Like if, let's say, for example, the outside of the uh, of the vessel touches the dead body, nothing happens. Only if the dead body is on top of it or inside it. Even if it doesn't touch the actual vessel, but it's actually inside it, if it goes into the inside of the vessel. So from here, the Bala Musa learn a lot, and Rav Ephraim gave a nice chidush, he said, any open vessel that has no cover fastened to it is eventually contaminated. This we learn, any person that is free mouth. Free mouth, any person that just keeps talking without watching his mouth eventually becomes tameh. Eventually, shtuyot come out of his mouth. If he, doesn't, if he doesn't watch his speech, if he's constantly open mouth, open mouth. You know, some people like to talk, like I like to talk, but some people like to talk without actually thinking about what they're going to talk about first. They don't have books in front of them. It's like to talk. Talk, talk, talk. He said, eventually, that's going to be something Tameh is going to come out of his mouth. And unfortunately, it could eventually get him to a point where he could lose his Olamaba. Because he could, free, he could talk freely, 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 and lose respect, not only for himself, but for the people around him. He thinks it's not a big deal. So what? I called you a name. What's the big deal? What do you mean? You called me a name. You destroyed my confidence. And according to Chazal, when someone is humiliates another person in public, it seems like an innocent thing. You just call them a funny name, like everybody else called them a name. Everybody else calls them shorty, so you call them shorty. Everybody calls them fatty, so you call them fatty. Everybody calls them this, you call them that. Or he just fell, and you laughed a little bit, and you know, pointed out, like, yeah, yeah, you have like two left feet. You think it's cute, it's funny. And his wife was watching, and she laughed too. You just humiliated him in public. You just made a bigger sin than murder. Bigger sin than murder. Chazal says, is like he murdered him, but worse. Like he murdered him, but worse. Why? Means he made his face white. Why is, it, why is a person face white? First, all the blood leaves the face. Then it becomes really red. Why? Because if you didn't have a face, if you didn't have cheeks, 
when you get embarrassed, what actually happens physiologically, all of your blood cells in your face explode. Meaning if you didn't have cheeks, all of the blood from your face will empty out of your face. Mamash murder. Mamash murder. He used to embarrass him in public if he didn't have the cheeks here. He died. Because it's funny to call him funny names. Or to call her funny names. And that's why Chazal says, that, my friend, is worse than murder. It's like murder, but it's worse. For murder, we know that there's a punishment. It's a very bad punishment. But a murderer still has a world to come. Still has Olam Abba. So, hey, murder, it's, co- it's death penalty. But they still have a lamaba. Still have a lamaba. Someone who embarrasses somebody, humiliates somebody in public, no lamaba. Why? Why? It's like murder, but it's worse. Why? I thought killing the guy's worse. No, no amos. Okay. Who? No, you're in the right direction. Someone who who murdered, he at least has a suffering that he goes through. It's conscious. He knows that somebody left the world due to his action. Stabbing, shooting, whatever. He killed somebody. Even if he's the most evil person in the world, he's still going to have bad dreams about it. Still going to feel something. That's part of his chuba. That gets him to still have some ulamaba. On the other hand, there's somebody that humiliated a person, he doesn't even feel bad. He just goes on in his day, he doesn't think there's anything wrong with it. Everybody else called him fatty. Everybody else called him Smokey. Everybody else called him this. Everybody else called him all these names. He doesn't even feel bad about it, meaning there's no part of him that did any chuva. He continues to operate as if there's nothing wrong. No remorse whatsoever. The comedians do that, and unfortunately there's a nice VIP section for them in Gainom. So, next is someone who nullifies the covenant of our forefather Avram. So, here the pshat, the basic meaning, is someone that refuses, like if he wasn't, he found out that he was Jewish, later on in his life. Or he wasn't uh, able to be circumcised as a kid. And when he finally becomes an adult, he chooses not to circumcise himself. Or not to circumcise his kid, like many of these imbeciles are trying to do in Israel. They're trying to outlaw circumcision in Israel. Already for a few years. So, someone that is trying to nullify the Brit, the Brit that Hashem had with Avraham Avinu. So that's the pshat. Another part of the meaning Chazal says is someone that actually tries to hide his breed. Tries to make it as if he has a He wants to look like the goyim. 
But the biggest and the most deepest meaning of all is someone that ruins his breed. And that we have about four and a half hours of material online about. And how do you ruin your breed? Amos? Wasting seed. Hashem Yachem. Wasting seed is mamash a suicide and a mass murderer at the same time. Suicide and mass murder at the same time. And I know that some of these imbeciles online like to make fun of it, like to joke around like it's not a big deal. Listen, you'll have eventually one day to deal with it, and you'll see whether it's a big deal or not. The point is that if the sages, if there's 1% chance, 1% chance of the sages being right, of the Torah being right, and wasting seed being exactly what we read it to be, then it's mamash like... 50 times worse than the Holocaust. Each time. Because each time a person, each time a Jew, each time a non-Jew, wastes seed, they're literally destroying hundreds of millions of souls. And they're going to have to pay for it. So there's a way, I talked to somebody just the other day, Baruch Hashem, this person, is actually someone who knows some Torah. To such an extent... I don't know if he's a Talmud Chacham or not, but to such an extent that he definitely knows enough where he teaches Gemara. He teaches Gemara. Older, respectable, smart, professional. He tells me, teaches Gemara. Never knew how bad wasting seed is. From from birth, very good at being frum, he says. Teaches Torah. Never learned anything about wasting seed until he saw the video and he realized this has been the key to many of the difficulties he's been dealing with for years. Because he says, everything you said that's happened in the video is happening to me. It's happening to me. This is, uh, I'm the witness. I'm not going to say his name, obviously, but the point is I'm trying to say is that this is not like some theory. It happens. He tells me that. Why doesn't anybody teach it? Why doesn't anybody teach it? I'm asking the same question for a few years. Because here we learn from this Mishnah that the sages do teach it. And they say that someone that wastes seed, someone that destroys their bleat, has no share of the world to come. Last but not least, Amegale Panim Batorah Shiloki Alacha Afal Pishi Eshbi Adot Torah Maasim Tovim. Someone who, instead of working with the 70 faces of the Torah, you know, people say, oh, there's 70 faces of the Torah, so I'm just adding another face, I'm throwing 71. Or I'm one of the 70. People say, oh, every time there's a new chidush, everyone says that 70 faces of the Torah, 70 faces of the Torah. So here is an explanation of what it means, 70 faces to the Torah. First of all, it's important to understand that honor to the sages is more important than any chidush you could ever come up with. One. Two. The sages... And us, as far as separation of intellect, kedusha, closeness to Hashem, 
pretty much anything and anything that's any good, as far as the separation between us, myself included, and them. If there's a monkey that's in the middle, we are closer to the monkey than we are to the sages. Understand? So, to say that I'm right and Rashi is wrong, never going to happen. To say Rambam's wrong and I'm right, never going to happen. You will never be right and Rambam wrong. You will never be right and Rabbi Akiva wrong. Never. Meaning that if you ever have the benefit, the schut, to have a chidush, you have to verify that it doesn't contradict the sages. And as a matter of fact, it has support from the sages. You have to have a raya, you have to have sources, you have to have proof for your source. Rabbi Vadiya says, when we were younger, before we would announce that we had a chidush, we would look and review the entire Torah. The entire Torah, he says, we'd have to review the entire Torah before we would say we have a chidush, meaning we have to check what everybody thinks. The sages from the last 3,000 years to review everything anyone says about this one specific thing to see if chas v'shalom, we contradict one of them. Today, Every, every schmo with a small little beard. You know, they have short beards today sometimes. So everybody wants to be a model. So they have short beards. And, you know, they have the uh, Hugo Boss suit with a shotness on it still. And, you know, everybody's a sophisticated scholar. Everybody's chidushim. Chidushim. Chidushim, chidushim, chidushim. Yeah, but chidushim, you have chidushim. Your chidushim is against the Torah. One recent imbecile came online and uh, said that, uh, you know, what's a miracle? He says, this is somebody sent me this three-minute uh, waste of time. He says, what's a miracle? I don't know, last I checked what a miracle is. Everyone knows miracle is something that's beyond the norm, and so on. He says, really, there's no such thing as miracles. So what was Yamsuf? What happened at Yamsuf? What happened in the Sea of Reeds? Nothing. It's the same thing as what Discovery Channel said, which is that there was a tsunami that happened to happen at the same time that Am Yisrael crossed it, there was a tsunami in both directions. Number one, that means he watches too much TV. Two, where's your chidush coming from? What source do you have other than Discovery Channel? When you're using Discovery Channel or National Geographic as your source against what Rambam said, which is that the Sea of Reeds split 12 times, not once, 12. It's split into 12 pieces. You're contradicting the Rambam 12 times plus one. You're never going to be right in the Rambam. Never. Never. Never going to happen. You're much, much closer to a monkey than you are to the Rambam's foot. Forget about the Rambam himself. And this is not a... I'm included in 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 this whole thing. So anytime I say to you guys, Oh, I have a chidush. No, by default, I already checked it. I checked it. I checked it. We checked, we checked, we checked. And there's already somebody else that said it, usually. Not that uh, smart that I'm actually going to have anything original. Somebody already said it sometime in the last 3,000 years. But the point being is that I can never contradict anybody else. 
And here, this Mishnah is telling us the danger of changing. He says, Someone who perverts the meaning of Torah, who says, No, you know what, homosexuality, maybe Hashem didn't mean it, that it's not allowed. Maybe it's not really an abomination. Maybe we are allowed to eat pork. Maybe Hashem didn't really care about driving on Shabbat. Maybe this and maybe that. All of this reform, conservative, open, orthodoxy garbage that's infested our Torah over these last several centuries. All of that stuff, he says, you're perverting the Torah. Even if he has ma'asim tovim, even if he has good deeds, even if he's been giving a million dollars a day, not a million dollars in his life, not like the guy that he was saying that won the lotto four times. Someone that won the lotto every day and he gave all of it to yeshivot. All of it to yeshivot. All of it to yeshivot. He changed the Torah. It's all worthless. All of it is worthless. All of it is worthless. Why? He changed the Torah. It doesn't get worse than that. It doesn't get worse than that. It doesn't get worse than changing the Torah. It doesn't get worse than telling people you're allowed to drive on Shabbat. It doesn't get worse than that. The Meiri says, someone who rejects the meaning of what the Torah dictates, claiming that a particular commandment is not really meant in a literal sense, but instead, it's a metaphor. This is what the conservatives say about different parts of Shabbat, different parts of Kashrut, and especially homosexuality. No, Hashem couldn't be so mean to say that homosexuality is not allowed. Or someone who is contemptuous of Torah and Torah scholars and the true bearer, the, the true bearers of God's wisdom. This is reform. This is people that just mamash hate the sages, hate anything to do with them. So he said, no, no, we do not accept the oral Torah. The interesting part about the reforms, as well as Christianity, is that they both say that they reject the oral Torah. But the only parts of the Torah that they actually do fulfill are parts from the Oral Torah, which is Kippah and Tzitit. The Talit is from Oral Torah. The Kippah is Oral Torah. It doesn't mention in the uh, written Torah where Kippah. Nowhere. So the stuff they actually do, like holidays they like to celebrate. What's the favorite holiday of uh, the Reforms? Who? No, Purim. Purim and Hanukkah. Purim and Hanukkah, both rabbinical holidays. Both oral Torah. Did you ever see uh, Moshe Rabbeinu celebrate Hanukkah? No, it's oral Torah. So while they say this, they do this. Why? Because it's all, it's all nonsense. It's all shtiot. It's all convenience. It's all convenience. So someone that perverts the Torah is in a very dangerous position. Now, how does this affect us? How, how does this connect to us in any way, shape, or form. This connects to all of us in a sense where many of us study alone. A lot of people study alone today. They take art scroll, they take uh, which the founders, Baruch uh, and uh, I met, he uh, just passed, I think, this last week. Um, major success in his life, but someone takes one of his art scroll, Gmaraz, starts learning, they think they're a Tamit Chacham after they finish a few Masechtot. They read the Midrashim, they already want to start writing a book. 
they know a few things, they want to become a rabbi. Everybody wants to be uh, out of a guy. Says, two months ago, I want to convert to Judaism. I said, okay, no problem. You know, tell me what you know, tell me what you don't know. You have to study certain things, you have to change certain things, no problem. Two months have passed. Two months have passed. I still don't, haven't tested him in any way. I don't know how much he's accomplished. I don't know how much he's read. But two months have passed. I get another mail. He says, I'd like to be a rabbi. What was my response? First, be a Jew. Don't worry about being a rabbi. Everyone reads a few books, a few lines, a few things. Everybody wants to be, oh, I already know Pastor Chavua. Okay, you know Pastor Chavua, Chazaku Baruch. An average Jew that's five years old also knows Pastor Chavua. What's the big deal? But that's the thing, everyone's fame. They think that this is like some type of glamour to be speaking in front of you. And as much as I love you guys, there's no glamour in this. This is trying to save souls. So, the reality is that people that study alone have to be very, very careful to continue for an extended period of time. And the reason why is because when you study alone, you have no one to double-check when you're wrong, because eventually you will be. Wrong probably more often than you're not wrong when you're coming up with your own assessments of things. So this is why it's important for you to study with a chavuta on a regular basis. Even if the majority of your studying is by yourself, having a chavuta once a day for an hour, you study, let's say, I don't know, five hours, you study ten hours, whatever you study. Having a chavuta for half hour, an hour, two hours a day, out of the ten hours, very important. Why? That one hour will be more, more important than the ten hours you study. Because that one hour is going to tell you what the truth is. Same thing with having a love. You have a chidush, you have an insight, you have an understanding, you have a confusing, you have a question, you have something, you go to your rav. Why? Because most likely you're wrong. Most likely you're wrong. Why? Because you're new. Because you're human. Because you study by yourself. Because you probably didn't understand it the right way. There are people that can actually learn Torah their entire life and live in a wrong way their whole life. Why? Because they have too much pride to have a chavuta, to have a rav. They're too much pride. No, no, no. He's not on my level. I'm, I'm, he's not on my level. I'm going to study by my own. He's not on my level. Okay, what about the rav? The rav's not on your level. No, no. He's, I, don't, I don't like the way he teaches. I don't like the way he teaches. I don't like the way he teaches. Well, how do you know how somebody teaches? You don't know anything yet. You read three gemarot. You know nothing by heart. You barely know Shema Yisrael by heart. What do you know by teaching? What do you know by teaching? You come, you listen, you absorb, you write down. That's it, that's it, it's teaching. No, I don't connect to it. What connect to it? It's not Tetris. You're not getting married, you're just learning something. Learn, read, write, finish, go home. Double check your Chidushim, double check everything. Why? Because or else you're putting your Olama Ba on the line. Because you can live your entire life as a Mechalel Shabbat thinking you're a tzaddik. You show up to Shammai and say, Oh, Hashem, 30 years of keeping Shabbat. He's like, what are you talking about? You've been the Mechalel Shabbat we've been screaming about for 30 years. Nobody wants to tell you. Because every time someone wants to tell you, they're like, no, 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 I know better than you. So this is a part that's very, very, very important. Now, last but not least, not to leave you guys on a very scary note, but this is 
the important part of the shiur. What is no share of the world to come? What does it mean? Now, in the Rambam, if you look at what's written versus what's said in today's world, you'll see that there is a very, very big difference between the two. As a matter of fact, in Ilchot Shuvah, it talks about chapter 8, first Allah. Allah means his law. This is it. It's final. Moshe Fim Sinai. Mount Sinai. Not theory. It's not thought. It's not opinion. Allah. Shukhan Aruch is based on a Rambam. So there's no such thing as I don't accept the Rambam. Like some idiots say today, no, 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 we don't, we don't accept the Rambam. What do you mean you don't accept the Rambam? You accept Shukhan Aruch? Yeah, okay, Shukhan Aruch, Rambam. It's a few, you know, differences, but overall, you can't say, no, no, Rambam's, you know, it's, doesn't count or something like that, something crazy like that. No, no, I accept uh, my uh, Rebbe's Alachot. Uh, yeah, but he didn't write Alachah book. No, whatever he says. Okay, did, did he say anything about Shabbat? Did he say anything? Oh, he doesn't teach that yet. Okay, so what do you do then? Until then? You just don't keep it? So, the Rambam says, in Yad HaChazakah, in Mishneh Torah, in Chod first Alacha. The good that's hidden for the righteous is the life of the world to come. This will be life which is not accompanied by death and good which is not accompanied by evil. The Torah alludes to this in the promise in uh, chapter in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 7 so that good will be granted to you and you will live long. The oral Torah explains so that good will be granted to you this is a world that's entirely good and you will live long. This is a world that's endless. Okay, so here is the beginning where he says, this Olam Abba is amazing, is, gives you a couple of sources of where it's from, and so on. As it continues in this Alakha, he says, the retribution, the punishment of the wicked is that they will not merit this life. Rather, they will be cut off and die. Which in Hebrew says, Whoever does not merit this life is truly dead and will not live forever. Rather, he will be cut off in his wickedness and perish as a beast. This is the intent of the meaning the term, of the term karet in the Torah. For example, one of them is in last week's parasha, chapter uh, 15, Numbers chapter 15, verse 31, where it states, the soul that surely be cut off, ikaret, uh, ikaret nefesh. Based on the repetition of the same word in the oral tradition, this explains the ikaret means cut off from this world, and ikaret means uh, cut off from the world to come. After these souls become separated from the bodies in this world, they will not merit the life of the world to come. Rather, even in the world to come, they will be cut off. So now, here he's telling you what, in essence, someone that's righteous has, Olam Abba, which is great, wonderful, and so on and so forth. And there's a lot, obviously a lot more details, uh, even more so in Allah, the second Allah. But 
The point is, he says that there's righteousness, wicked. This is the 13 principles of faith. Righteous get merit and get alaba. Wicked lose alaba. So now, this first alakha was originally the reason. Chazal explains that many of the sages that didn't read the entire Mishneh Torah, that haven't gotten to his um, Sanhedrin, part of his Mishneh Torah, this is the reason why they wanted to burn these books. This is the reason why they went, many of the sages went against the Rambam. They said that the way that he described Olam reward and punishment, was completely insufficient. Where when he said that the retribution is just losing Olam and that's it, it's what it seems like on the first Alakha, it's still, when you go to the fifth Alakha, it gives more details. But in the first Alakha, it seems like it's either you get Olam or you don't get anything. They said it was so far away from really what happens that they wanted to mamash cancel out this entire series. Why? It says because you didn't talk about Gehenom. He says someone losing their Olam seems like a fairy tale. Like, okay, so you didn't go to play with the kids. Big deal. You didn't get the ice cream. You didn't get the reward. You didn't get the trophy award. You didn't get the uh, uh, participation award. No, they said, no, no, no. The, uh, in, in the introduction of chapter 10 of the Sanhedrin, the Rambam states what karet really means. And he says that the most severe punishment that the soul receives is karet, but this is not intended to imply that there's no other rep- retribution. On the contrary, on the contrary, here there's the details of what happens to those that sin, what happens to those that don't get Olam and Hashem Echem, they get serious Gehenom. They're not having Olam is the least of their worries. The suffering that they get instead of Olam is what is what people thought he wasn't teaching. So in the fifth Alakha, he actually says the retribution beyond which there's no greater, greater there's, there's no greater punishment than this, is when a soul is cut off and will not merit the world to come. This is referring to the obliteration of the soul. Which is uh, uses the uh, verse in uh, in Psalm fifty five twenty four, which is a um, the pit of destruction is referring to uh, to Be'er uh, Shachat. So and he gives the different the seven different names for this uh, nullification of the soul, but all of it is referring to these seven different names, which the Gemara talks about. These are the seven different names of Gehenom. Now. I'm not going to obviously go give you guys a shiur by Gehenom right now, but to give you an idea, an idea of what we're dealing with here. So no one says that they don't know. 
אין בוק ראשית חוכמה, שער היראה, יצז והרשע שיחריש, שיחריש, עניין גיהנום נאמר לו שילך למדבר ששם בקריאת דקורח. He says anyone that teaches, teaches Torah, but he tries to darken the issue of Geinom, meaning as if it doesn't exist. Unfortunately, this sounds very similar to today's teaching, which is, no, no, Geinom is like a washing machine. It's a washing machine. You go there for a year, you get washed a little bit, like a thorough car cleaning, and everything's okay. So first and foremost, Chazal explains, this is giving uh, many, many sources, but here he's talking about here, this person that actually is using euphemisms to minimize what the Gainom really is, what the punishment for sin is, he's considered 100% a Rasha. He's considered a Rasha, why? Because he's leading people to have false beliefs. And how do we know that there is such a thing as Gainom? In the Gemara Masechet Iruvin, page 19a, it says, Amar Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, Shiva Shemot Yeshlo Legeinom Ve'elu Em, Shaol Ve'avadon Be'er Shachat Be'or Shaon, Tit Ayaven Ve'Tzalmavet Ve'eretz Tachtit. It says there are seven, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, who actually saw Gainom. there's a whole uh, Gemara about it, of how he met uh, Eliyahu Navi, and Eliyahu Navi showed him Gainom. And uh, he says that there are actually seven names for Gainom in the Torah. Seven names for it. And he gives the verses in, uh, from the prophet jo- Jonah, from Tehilim, from Psalms, from a, um, uh, the prophet Yeshaya, which is Isaiah, uh, several, several verses and also in the five books of Moses. Uh, for example, one of them being the Parashat Korach. So we have several, seven different names for Gehenom. One of them is Sheol, which we learn in Parashat Korach. That's when the ground opened up. And it says that uh, Korach... And his family, except his kids, uh, fell into Sheol. It's called, one time it's called Sheol, another time it's called Sheolah. So here, the Gemara says, that is another name for Genom. In another place in the Gemara, it says that there's three openings for Genom. One of them is in a, um, the desert, where Korach is. One of them is in Yerushalayim, and one of them is in the sea. One of them is somewhere in the ocean. So first name is Sheol, that's what Korach is. And a Rasha that minimizes the issues of Genom says that Genom doesn't exist, or it's a Christian belief, or it's not part of Judaism, or it's not really such a big deal. It's a washing machine that just goes away after a year. He is considered 100% a Rasha according to the Torah, and the reason why is because he's given people false belief. So that's one. Second thing is, it's called Avadon. Avadon we learn from a different, from Tehilim. Another one is Be'er Shachat, another one is Bo Sha'on, another one is Tita Yaven, Tzalmavet, Tzalmavet is also in uh, Tehilim, and another one is Eretz HaTachtit, which is actually in um, Vayikra. So here we have the whole issue of Genom being very much a very real thing. So now the next question is, what is this that everybody keeps saying about how there's only a uh, year in Gehenom, it's just a washing machine. Where do they get that from? In the Gemara Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 17, it talks about how there's Gehenom, and that the trial is one year. 
The trial is one year. There's no such thing as Gehenom is one year. Gehenom could be eternity. But according to Rashid Chokhmah, which uses uh, at least no less than five different sources, he says that the minimum sentence in Gehenom is 20 years. The minimum sentence in Gehenom is 20 years. Nowhere here, not that I uh, remember this by heart, this whole book, but here in Perik Shlishi, in uh, Shara Yirah, it talks about Rabbi Meir, Mishum Rabbi Lazar. Says, Kashe Yom Adin, Shakados Baruchu, Dan et Adam, Bekever Yotem Midin Shil Gehenom, Din Gehenom, Meisrim Shana Olemala. Says that uh, the uh, judgment of Gehenom is 20 years or more. Possible. Possible. But there's another place also that says the same thing or says something a little bit more. Point being is that this, uh, this one year thing is definitely for sure not a uh, rule of thumb. It could be less, could be more. Point, you know, it's a, uh, it could be none. It could be nothing if you're righteous. But to just say that everybody goes to get home for one year and it's, there's no, no source for that. There's only source for one year is that the trial is one year. Now, as far as what happens in Gehenom, I don't think you guys really want to go over that. That's really, really horrific. Um, but uh, there's a Midrash, um, famous one that uh, I think one of the, um, I think, I know, one of the uh, uh, Israeli rabbis did a very, very scary video about. Um, and it talks about this specific one from Rashid Chuchma. It says, Rabbi Yoshua that met uh, with Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi came to Rabbi Yoshua and he asked him, do you want to see Gehenom? He said, yes. And he showed him what's in Gehenom and then he reports what he saw. And the visual is a nightmare. Times a million. Of what he describes that he saw. So, since it's late, and then I don't think it's necessarily relevant for everyone to know, uh, we're not going to go through every detail. But whatever you're imagining, times it by a thousand. It's worse. So, to give you guys a small, tiny idea of, uh, even though it's only souls and not bodies, it says that he saw all types of people hanging. And they hang by the parts of their body that sinned. So if they sinned with their sex organs, that's where they're hanging from. If they sinned with their eyes, that's where they're hanging from. If they sinned with their hands, that they're hanging from. If it's with their mouth, that's where they're hanging from. But he gives a lot more details than what I'm giving you. The point is, is that this entire book, very, very, very scary. Uh, this is where it's, this has Masechet Gehenom. This is where we get all of our, really most of our information about it. There's other few other books about it as well. But the key is to understand that Gehenom is very, very much a real part of Torah. It's not a Christian belief. It's not, even though they believe it, they got all their information from us. It's not some, uh, I don't know, faraway place. It's real. And it's actually necessary for all of you to believe in it. Because the only way you're going to avoid it is by believing in it first. So therefore you understand what you're dealing with. Now, to finish off everything, people always ask, 
why is it that rebuke is rare, but at the same time the Torah says that it's necessary. Because in the uh, the prophet Jeremiah says, and also in Masechet Chagigah, page 14a, that the Bet HaMikdash was not destroyed. Hashem didn't decide to destroy the Bet HaMikdash until He officially saw that there's no more people to actually rebuke anyone. No one was willing to rebuke anyone anymore. It says now, since there's no one to rebuke anyone anymore, there's no way anyone's going to do tshuva. And if no one's going to do tshuva, might as well destroy it. It's just going to get worse from here. The Rambam in and also in a, um, I believe it's also in, um, talks about rebuke, but there's actually even more in the Yisurebe, uh, I believe. No, Ilchot Deot. Ilchot Deot, it gives you the laws of rebuking. But one of the main things that it talks about is that someone that does not rebuke, someone who doesn't rebuke, A person that is, let's say, for example, violating a like a you know a rabbinical mitzvah because he thinks he's not going to listen. That's one thing, but that does not relieve him from the mitzvah of rebuking. Many people think that if someone is not going to listen, then you're absolved. You don't need to rebuke him. That's only on rabbinical mitzvot. It's only on rabbinical mitzvot, and it's only on things that are not from the Torah, not deoraita. Uh, if someone is violating Shabbat, you have to rebuke them, regardless of whether they listened or not. To such an extent that the Rambam says in uh, chapter 6 of Ilchot Deot, uh, he lists, a, uh, uh, and also in Ilchot Tshuva, Ilchot Tshuva 4.1, he talks about how the uh, failure to rebuke is one of the four sins that's so severe that Hashem will take away this person's ability to do Tshuva. Meaning that if someone refuse, refuses to rebuke other people, he is, Hashem is going to put him in a situation where he himself can't do tshuva. He's not going to have siyat dishmaya. Obviously, everyone can do tshuva, but he's going to remove his siyat dishmaya. So when is it? When do we have to rebuke? We have to rebuke anything that's any any mitzvah that's deoraita. If you see somebody driving on Shabbat, you have to rebuke him. If you see some, huh? So that's a good that's a good question. So this is exactly what he talks about. This is why I connected with this one. He says, "Okay, when it comes down to a um, biblical sin, when it's a biblical sin, initially you have to try to rebuke them privately." Without humiliating them, if it's a biblical sin, if it's Shabbat, if it's Eshet Ish, he's with a woman that's uh, not allowed to be with, or anything like that. But if it's a bi- initially private, but if he continues to sin after you've rebuked him, he continues to drive on Shabbat, he continues to violate the Torah, not just a uh, rabbinical sin that uh, like Netilat Yedayim. He continues to violate the Torah, you have 100% permission from the Torah to embarrass him in public. Here he says, he may be put to shame. This is actually what it says in the here. He may be put to shame in public. And his sin may be publicized. Meaning you can actually put a bulletin board in the middle of the highway. Joe drives on Shabbat. 
Exactly. Why? Because they're violating the Torah. Violate Torah, you have to. It's, there's no. There's, they're not considered someone that you're not allowed to sh- to to embarrass. They're beneath that. They're not. They don't, they don't, they're not following the law, so therefore they they actually get abused by the law. He may be subjected to abuse, to scorn, and curses until he repents. As was the practice of all the prophets of Israel. This is actually what the, the prophets used to do. So this is actually part of the reason why the prophets were killed. But nonetheless, when someone is, does a biblical sin, you actually are allowed to embarrass them. Now, of course, Shulchan Aruch also talks about of how you should do everything you possibly can to not embarrass them. We're not here to start throwing rocks at people, you know, to, to embarrass them. You have to do things in a nice way, bring them a lecture, send them a lecture, give them a CD, talk to them, convince them. You get, you definitely get, yeah, invite them for Shabbat. You get, you get more, more with, uh, more uh, bees with honey than you do with uh, something else. But the point being is that if someone continues to talk in shul, ruining everybody else's tefillah, you're allowed to embarrass them in public. This is again, not an open ticket to embarrassing people in public, but this is to make sure that we all understand where is the line. Where is this line of not being allowed to embarrass people in public? Can they just desecrate Hashem's name? We don't have to say anything. We have to be quiet. Like people said, no, listen, this attack against Dwek, this rabbi that said homosexuality is okay and is, uh, is, is great, it's Chilul Hashem, it's uh, embarrassing in public. No, it's not. You actually have to do it. Why? Because you went against the Torah. And Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin says in a place that there's Kilu Hashem, there's no consideration for, for Kabod. There's no consideration for honor or, or anything like that. It's off, it's off limits. So this is the last of it, and that's one of the most important things that you need to understand. One story I tell you from Tana Deve de Eliyahu. Uh, Hashem came to um, Joshua, Yeshua, after the door after Moshe Rabbeinu, and he said... Why do you use such a language to frighten my people? You tell all my people, Hashem's not going to forgive you, Hashem's going to punish you, there's Genom, there's this. Why? Why do you say I'm not forgiving? Didn't I forgive them after they complained about me ten times in the desert? Didn't I forgive them after the idol worship? Didn't I forgive them after they complained about the man? Didn't I forgive them after they... All these things, didn't I forgive them? Well, you saying Lashon Rabba Amir? He's asking Yeshua. He's asking Yeshua. He's saying, Lashon about me. Yeshua says, I only did it to scare them so they listen to what you say. And Hashem Barach, and the Yahweh Navi writes this. The Yahweh Navi is Tanah Devei Eliyahu. The Yahweh Navi writes this. He says, Hashem Barach kissed his hands. Kissed Yeshua's hands and his forehead thanking him. Hashem, I don't know what that means, he kissed his hands. All I know is Hashem doesn't kiss my hands. So, meaning that Hashem's strategy of rebuke, the same thing. This is not new, this is not an innovation. This is the way it's always been until the last few hundred years. But we need to know what Gainom is. We need to know what Olamabai is. We need to know what losing Olamabai is. Because we need to know the price in order to know what's on the line. Once we know what's on the line... It doesn't matter what the details are of how much suffering is, how much suffering. You just need to know there's a bad place, there's a good place. Get to the good place, because the bad place you don't want to be in. You don't need to know where you're hanging from and how you're hanging. You just need to know there's a hanging. And Hashem, we all do tshuva, we all click closer to Hashem in Barach. We all actually do what Hashem wants, the way He wants it, not start creating rules 
אתה מבין את השם? דו תשובה. 